Welcome to episode 43 of the Wake Up Podcast. Man, I've been away for like five weeks, six weeks, maybe even longer. It's been a while. Um, so it's good to be back. I This episode is actually um, a re, re-recording. So Jane Gatsby, who's a brilliant, super intelligent young lady, um, we bumped into each other on Twitter um, and noticed that there was some like similarities in things that we were both interested in. So, you know, I reached out for us to do a podcast together, listened to a couple of our episodes, thought they were fantastic. Um, if you haven't heard any of our stuff yet, definitely check it out. Uh, it's called Welcome to, I think it's Welcome to Wonderland. Um, anyway, you'll, you'll see it in the show notes. So we recorded like probably four weeks ago now. Um, and the incident was so bad that we had to dunk the initial one. But this conversation was absolutely fantastic. I think we almost, I, I think we hit two and a half hours. So we go into, you know, what is philosophy? We discuss complexity theory. You know, we discuss morality. Um, you know, we, we move into like, you know, free will and determinism. Uh, we discussed also like the, the structure of freedom, like what what enables freedom in a society, you know, rights versus entitlements and responsibilities, um, you know, decentralization and how you know pushing decision making to the edge uh, enables a complex system to function as opposed to trying to control it and manage it from the center. Um, and then what was you know I think one of the most beneficial parts of the conversation was towards the end where we discussed royalism, which is. Uh, which is a term or you know a, a model of the world functioning put forth by a guy called Curtis Yavin, um, you know under the pseudonym Mencius Moldbug, uh, who uh, which Jane introduced me to. Now, a lot of Bitcoiners will naturally find this uh, in alignment with what they you know what they sort of perceive as the citadel model that Bitcoin enables. And I, I thought this was an incredible parallel here because uh, you look at the the work that uh, Curtis Yarvin did around like the patchwork model, what he discussed is kind of like a charter cities, you know, or city states that will emerge in the future that are more economically viable and allow people to, you know, live, you know, by the rules that they want to within their jurisdiction. So th- this is a this is an incredible conversation. It's like honestly one of my favorite ones, and I'm so glad to to be back recording apps um and with this one sort of kicking it off so definitely go follow jane's work she's brilliant uh she's young she's intelligent and you know early on a journey into bitcoin so you know we're gonna we're gonna keep keep pulling that string because you know basically everything that we discussed about you know morality philosophy you know the patchwork model royalism etc can only be enabled through something like bitcoin emerging and tying uh economics tying money back to reality um in the absence of that link you know what we're going to do is keep trying to fake ourselves into prosperity which leads to disaster which is kind of you know we've seen a taste of that in the last 18 months so as usual uh subscribe to the podcast whether on uh, YouTube or Anchor or Spotify or Apple Music or wherever the hell else uh, you listen to this. Um, I have a new Twitter as well, actually, because, uh, yeah, the, the thought police finally got me and banned me. So I'm on Ghost of Svetsky at the moment. And who knows, maybe I can get my old account unlocked. But until then, that's where I am. Um, and then definitely follow Jane 
I think it's Jane underscore Gatsby on Twitter and then just Jane Gatsby on Instagram. And I'll see you on the next episode. And welcome to episode, I think, 43. It's been a long time since I um, recorded a pod. And actually, the last time I recorded a pod was with Jane Gatsby. And here we are again. Um, she's <laughs> she's the host of the Wonderland podcast. Um, uh, my notes here say she's a student of complexity, philosophy, liberty. There's, there's lots that's happened uh, since we last caught up. And for those people listening now saying, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, we did record a podcast. Uh, what was it now? Four weeks ago. Um, but the... The internet was so shit that um, we had to dunk it. So here we are, round two. Round two. Let's get into round it. Round two, indeed. Um, so we're, we're going to cover like a whole lot of stuff. Um, let's start with, uh, let's start with setting some like foundational stuff. Um, so yeah, if you can sort of give the listeners um, a little bit of, I don't know, should we start with a, a foundation on, you know, what is philosophy, epistemology? You know metaphysics and maybe some complexity theory let's sort of create a bedrock and then we'll start digging um <laughs> what's the meaning of life jane tell us now okay so um a philosophy i would define as being the study of three different distinct domains um philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of existence of reality of um ourselves and then our relationship to existence and so that breaks down into the domains of metaphysics, which is concerned with the fundamental nature of reality, um, epistemology, which is how we can come to acquire information about reality, and then morality, which is the question of um, what you should do given the information you're able to acquire. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess, why, why does that matter? Um, and, and who needs it? Um, I, I think it matters because everybody is operating by some sort of philosophy, whether implicitly or explicitly, that's going to be motivating how you um, interpret things in the world and how you act in the world. And if you don't have a philosophical system that's kind of thought through and integrated, then you're going to probably be encountering a lot of um, kind of uncertainty or contradiction in your own behavior that's going to be generating a lot of um, guilt and shame concerning things like if you're not operating by a consistent set of principles in your life that you can kind of describe and refer back to that's motivating your choices throughout the world then you're just kind of acting um, arbitrarily and aimlessly and so even if people don't normally think of philosophy as being something that has a lot of impact on their day-to-day -day life they're always going to be operating by some philosophical system but it might just be happening implicitly and they're not um, going to be cognizant of the sorts of impacts that it's having on their life. Mm -hmm. And, and do, do you think that's sort of um, almost reminiscent in modern society or modern culture in a sense that like things like philosophy, and I don't know if we discussed this last time, but kind of the, the study of matter, like sort of empirical sciences and studies have kind of taken precedence over the study of what matters so like you know philosophy and economics and trade-offs and psychology and like sort of we, we've tried to then take the study of what matters and almost deconstruct it and place it into these you know formulate boxes and try and squeeze it into these models which don't actually reflect reality um and then all of a sudden these you know things like philosophy become empty in a sense like do, do you think that's sort of reminiscent of today 
Yeah, I definitely think that with the, you know, uh, enlightenment and the obvious success that science has brought us and the scientific method, there's been a surge in the past hundred years or so to start taking those same techniques and applying them to uh, the domains of like the social world and the spiritual world. And I think that's to their own detriment. Um, I think science works really well for like uh, hard science categories, but as soon as you start trying to expand that into the humanities and then using scientific methodologies to drive um, meaningful information about how you should live your life, I, I think that's going in the wrong direction and it's gonna produce a lot more um, contradiction and confusement than the other way around, confusion. <laughs> Confusion. Confusement. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, new word. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more. I did, I did the, the recent piece that I did, like sort of the chapter two of my 12 rules for Bitcoin, like looking at it through the Jordan Peterson lens was like, had a whole section about the study of matter and what matters. And, and the fact that we've had such a positive feedback loop in the study of matter, um, you know, in many ways, we, we've kind of, I don't know, like, um, de-evolved the other studies um, by trying to put them in there. And, and, and what, what's interesting is that, you know, we, we need both. Like, you know, maybe thousands of years ago, we didn't really have a, you know, methodological, methodological process for studying matter. Um, and as such, you know, we thought the rain came from fucking dancing around in a circle um, and praying to, you know, the nearest rock to like to make it rain and, and you know that that's not functional right um so so it's sort of i think a functional society well not i think it's evident that a functional society requires both um and and not the um not the attempt to try understand one without the other but um that leads me into uh, complexity theory which i think is a really interesting bridge uh, in a sense, between both. Um, oh, that's very true. Yeah, can, can you talk us through? Can you talk us through that? Yeah, um, complexity theory is um, essentially the study of complex adaptive systems, which kind of span across lots of uh, phenomena in the social sphere as well as in like the natural world. And so, complexity is kind of emerging as like a meta science that can be really useful for. Uh, examining phenomena that exist either in nature or in uh, emergent social relations that we have. Um, in terms of explaining what complexity theory is, I always struggle with it. It's not anything yeah. that's, um, it's essentially you're describing a bunch of features or characteristics that govern a whole bunch of different sorts of systems, but they all have certain similarities. Um, so complex adaptive systems are complex, meaning that they are entangled and interrelated. They are made out of a bunch of different agents that all will interact in ways that are nonlinear. Um, so you can get things like feedback loops and snowball effects. Um, and then they are adaptive, meaning that they are interacting. They're, they're not self-contained. They're receiving information from and responding to in an environment, which is kind of spurring uh, new changes in progress in the system. So like a classic example of a complex adaptive system would be like Darwin's theory of uh, natural selection or something evolution, um, where you've got certain, you know, mutations that are occurring, you've got some variants occurring in the system. And then if that is something that is beneficial in relation to the environment, then it'll be selected for and propagated into the future. Um, but then, so you could say something like uh, social media is also an example of a complex adaptive system, but then you're going with different kinds of information, 
um, that are, it's, if you're talking about like, you know, when memes go really viral or something, that's something that's being selected for in relation to a certain context of culture and comedy or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the human body is another example, right? Um, so as an economy, like I, I, I loved in one of your episodes, you sort of mentioned that, you know, we're, we're taught when we learn math and statistics and everything that, you know, somehow the world has these, you know, uh, bell curve distributions. But in reality, most things distributed more like 80-20 or like Pareto law type distributions where, um, you know, if we look at, you know, how nature functions or, you know, how things compound, you know, when when there's positive feedback loops, you know, you, you get natural power law distributions, right? Um, yeah. In life. And, and and that sort of, that's, that's completely natural. Um, but people are sort of taught that somehow these, you know, uh, you know, these bell curve normal distributions are how we should sort of view the world. So, so can we talk can we pull a couple of threads there, perhaps? Yeah, well, part of the problem is that we're taught that a bell curve is a normal distribution. Mm. It's a normal mm. kind of making you think that this is something that should be a default. Um, bell curves only apply to instances where the um, information is kind of unrelated to the other information that's being measured in the system. It's all um, like just independent one-off occurrences. So something like people's heights or weights or shoe sizes would all abide by bell curves. But once the agents in the system are interrelated, as if like somebody else's height could have an impact on your height, that's mm-hmm. when you start getting uh, Pareto distributions. And that's happening because of that nonlinear component I mentioned earlier, where um, like, say, if you've got like in a market, you've, you're selling books or something like that. The moment a book starts creeping up on a bestseller list, it's going to accumulate more sales because it's going up and up on the bestseller list. And so you start seeing a snowballing effect where then suddenly, um, you know, in basically any industry you can think of, yeah, 20% of the books will have 80% of the sales, 20% of the cities will have 80% of the population density, um, 20% of the stars in the galaxy also contain 80% of the density. Like it applies to absolutely everything. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and it applies to wealth like wealth distribution is the same thing like you know the more the more um this is well i want to dig into this one later but just sort of like how uh inequality is a is a is a predicate for um complexity in a sense like or or maybe the other way around like you know inequality is is a natural outcome of complex systems um and, and that's sort of what um helps drive them but just a quick note that i've got here is maybe defining the three components of um, of a complex system. So the agents, drives, and signals. Maybe we can give an example so people can better contextualize this in their heads. Yeah. Um, so as you just said, about three components, agents, drives, and signals. Essentially, agents are motivated by certain drives or desires, and then they uh, communicate information via signals that are being left behind in the system. So um, in an example, like social media, if you're looking at like, yeah, some viral meme or something like that, then the users are the agents, the drive is entertaining content. And then the signal is being, however, if you're interacting with something online, then you're giving it a little data point that then is going to force it up or down in the algorithm. And so simple, like people just going online and like scrolling through TikTok is a perfect example or something. It's like TikTok's algorithms are completely based in complex adaptive systems. You just get an account and it just starts giving you 
random videos and you don't have to do anything in terms of providing it an input in terms of what you want. It just starts giving you videos and then depending on if you're liking it or commenting on it or sharing it or um, like watching the full thing or just scrolling past it, it uses all that information to then customize the content um, more towards what you want over time. And so you can get these um, really intelligent systems that are based off of um, no, no, no one person going in and kind of setting the bars of, well, this is going to be the desired outcome. That's how you get like the invisible hand of the markets or something too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, well, that, that's, that's a really important point there. It's like the, um, the reason why I think, and you know, many libertarians and Australian economists and all that sort of stuff, I guess, understand that central planning can never actually win is because it just can't compete against um, a complex system in which uh, not only are decisions sort of pushed out to the edge, you know, which is, seems to be how all of life functions, but also like another piece here that you mentioned in uh, one of your pods is the how complex systems use uh, random error uh, to their advantage. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you use the the ant example of that. Um, do you want to talk yeah, a little sure. bit about that? Uh, and and the, the notion of using sort of variance towards your advantage is you no know, like uh, that's what Nassim Taleb calls anti-fragility. The systems mm -hmm. get stronger under duress. Um, so you could go with like, yeah, an ant or um, evolution again, the notion of like if an ant colony is kind of have has its network operating and it's harvesting off of certain resources and all the ants are going their little predetermined pathways. The ants will more or less kind of abide by whatever their neighboring ants are doing, but they have a little bit of variance and randomness in their own behavior, where once in a while you'll get one dummy worker ant who just takes a completely random course. Um, and generally speaking, you'd might think, oh, well, that's a really bad thing because he's not going and doing the harvesting like all of his brothers are. But what if he goes and wanders and finds a whole abandoned picnic or something? then that little bit of random variation, just like a genetic mutation that can have adaptive advantages, suddenly that little ant has discovered a new food source and then he can relay that information back to the colony where if all ants were stuck in like a, a constant state where there's no variance occurring, then eventually they would just deplete all the food resources and they'd all starve to death too. So what you're saying about central like planning as well, um, the problem is like, even if you had someone who's a total genius, who is like able to think about every single internal issue that might arise and plan everything perfectly, you're still, your central planning will never be able to keep up with the fact that there is an external environment, which is also uh, impacting how the system needs to be responding. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I feel like that's one of the, I always use the example of when, I, I learned stunt driving in, in my mid twenties. And one of the first lessons I was taught was when the car's losing control, you you let go of the steering wheel. You let go of the steering wheel, you let go of the brake, you, you let go of everything. And and I think, you know, one of the beautiful things about life is it, it, it's, you know, irrespective of how much we try and like fucking hold onto it and grasp it and control it. Like, you know, life proceeds whether we let go or whether we grasp onto it. And, and I feel like, you know, human beings in our, in our arrogance or in our attempt to, you know, run things. Um, I actually met someone uh, recently who, you know, within 24 hours, like drove me absolutely mental, like, because like she, she was such, such a control freak about life, you know, like completely, 
completely anxious about any form of um, uncertainty. And it's like, you know, the, and this, this probably feeds into like stoicism and all of that. It's like the, the ability to let go and like let life proceed and, and find its way. I don't know. It, it seems to be like lacking in the world today. You know, we, we try and over control everything. Um, and, you know, we're, we're sort of taught this fallacy of if only we had enough resources or if only we had enough, you know, intelligence, if only the, the intellectuals had enough power, everything would be perfect. And like mm. perfection is this, this outcome, which first of all, it's a stupid outcome to attain because, you know, it cannot exist, right? It's like perfection is a relative term anyway. But I think, I think it's just such an important important piece. Um, I don't know if you've got anything to add to that, but I, I kind of wanted to ask like maybe what some of your inspirations were on kind of coming to, to this sort of thinking because it's, it's obviously rare in the world. Um, in terms of complexity in particular? Yeah, or, or just in terms of like the, the ingredients of like, you know, being a young woman um, and like sort of having, I guess, almost the courage or the insight to, to be willing to adopt a position of, you know, the, the world is more complex than that, which I can, you know, create and completely manage. Like, the, I feel like that takes a lot of courage. I feel like most people are living in a constant state of fucking anxiety because, you know, everything has to be a particular way. Um, and, you know, they seem to be the people who end up, I don't know, in government and politics and try and impose that shit on everybody else. Well, in terms of gen like developing an interest in it, um, my mom teaches complexity. Like she's a university professor. Oh, and, wow. she okay. it. and so that kind of gave me the the tools of the understanding. And then Jordan Peterson also talks about kind of complexity a lot rather indirectly. I don't know if he ever yeah. uses that technology, but he talks about chaos and order and he talks about Pareto distributions and kind of people being in a constant process of negotiating with, you know, um, how, how much do you want to pull relics from the past into the future and how much you need to adapt and change and all of that kind of abides by complex adaptive principles which is why in my podcast I use complexity theory as the metaphysics or what we were mentioning earlier like to me that said it says something very fundamental about the basis of how reality operates and unfolds um, and, and that's why I'm so interested in exploring it and why I think it has such relevant um, implications on politics is because there's something about complexity which is incredibly naturalistic and kind of it's a meta structure in terms of it doesn't have any prescriptive paths of like this is how things need to be consistently done it's about the rules and the relationships that are governing any particular manifestation and those things can stay consistent over time even if the way that they're currently appearing is diverse and always changing mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's such a good point that will feed into later when we talk about like royalisms and royalism and how you know new forms of society can actually function i i, I recall you mentioning something about um you know when you when you go and buy an apple product for example you don't care about the internal structure of how apple functions as a business you just want the fucking phone right so it's like it's almost um i don't know i feel like there's an analogy to that Let, let's we'll dig into that in a moment um Determinism and free will. This was an interesting uh, subject in one of your things. So let's talk through that. <laughs> oh, where to start? <laughs> um, 
I, I think brains are complex adaptive systems like anything else. That's a thing I mentioned in the podcast. Um, your brain is kind of abiding by the same principles that an ant colony is in terms of um, your, your neurons are just these little things that you don't think of as having much agency, but then they kind of compound in these interactions that can gain symbolic value as you increase in uh, like the layers of stratification um, where, and to the point where you get something that's doing things that are quite intelligent and manipulating symbols that aren't necessarily existing on the base substructures where, you know, the ants are just little worker ants hanging out, but then they've all kind of got different castes. That means they've got certain jobs to do and stuff like that. And in terms of how the ant colony is operating, it's not concerned with the movements of any particular ant, but it kind of has this emergent whole that can behave really intelligently. Um, so there's definitely a parallel there between how I think how our consciousness evolves as well. Um, and that worldview doesn't lend itself to a whole lot of free will because it implies that, you know, all of your experiences is just the product of a bunch of causes that happen to you outside of your control. And then your neurons firing in a certain way that also, even if it feels like, you know, I'm composing the sentence, whatever word I say subsequently is going to be, it's not really being selected for, it's just a consequence of a bunch of causes that came before me. Um, so I guess fundamentally I'm a determinist, but then I have this idea that your beliefs about the world beget um, outcomes in life. And so if you walk through life acting as though you don't have any agency, there's a difference, I guess, between things being caused and you not having agency, where you can mm -hmm. be a causal being, but your actions can still be um, meaningful and important. And so if you're emphasizing a system that says, well, no, you don't have any agency actually, then you're never gonna do anything that's that productive. Um, but you can have a worldview of saying, well, no, 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 I can make meaningful choices in the world. And then that becomes an input, going back to that idea of like all of your beliefs, right? If you're raised in a household where you're constantly being told how much agency you have, you're going to be capable of making more difficult decisions than if um, you're being exposed to the contrary belief. Okay, so, so, so does that sort of, imply that because um, hmm. it's it's a really tough one to, to disentangle right because you've got like this blend of um, you know a, a, an agent who believes they have free will but that's that sort of belief system has had to I guess be influenced in some way by something beforehand um, but in believing that they have free will maybe what do they do they cause circumstances or you know events such that they um their assumption or their illusion of free will can kind of manifest further and kind of like it reinforces itself in a sense yeah, exactly yeah i think your life unfolds in accordance with your expectations so um, and, and what you are, um, wh yeah, whatever you kind of set yourself out for, like, oh, okay, I'm, if you're telling yourself that you're really depressed and you don't have any friends or something, then you're going to perpetuate that narrative further into your life. But if you can redirect your thought to go, well, actually, you know, things are more or less fine. And maybe when you're presented with a context where you're able to meet somebody new, you're going to be more prone to taking them up on that opportunity rather than kind of be like missing out on opportunities that are kind of presenting themselves at the outsets of your life because you are not thinking that those are things that are available to you. I'm framing this really badly. Like if you 
aren't ever bothered to look go and look for a job, you're not going to find a job. If you just go and spend a few days handing out resumes, well, maybe you won't get a job, but it's better than if you haven't done anything at all. That sort of thing of like, if you want to increase your potential for success, you have to be approaching the world as in, yeah, of course I can do anything and with as empowered an attitude as possible. It, it, it doesn't matter insofar as if it's true in terms of what outcomes it will generate for you, but that's giving you the best possible chance. So, so would you agree that if I said, you know, we like as potentially agents with free will are part of the deterministic equation in a sense, in that case? Yeah. Like, so, 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 so I guess it's in that sense, maybe it's not like one or the other, like, you know, may, maybe free will and what determinism are like a lot cl more closely intertwined than what they're sort of made. Like they're, they're not poles, perhaps they are. Yeah, I definitely I don't, don't think they're contradictory ideas. Um, mm. And the episode of the podcast where I talk about free will and determinism, I'm kind of comparing like the competing views between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson because they've had a few discussions mm -hmm. about it. Um, and one of the points that I bring up is that Jordan Peterson is always going on and on about the importance of individual responsibility, right? But that notion is based in the assumption that my actions have a direct impact on other people in the world around me, which is a deterministic premise. The idea that if I have a conversation with somebody and it has the capacity to dramatically alter their actions that alter the course of their life, that alters the course of their friend's life, et cetera, you can have this whole like ripple effect, uh, which relates back to complexity, of course. Um, if if everybody was completely, had, had total free will, then it shouldn't matter what somebody else does or says to you because your um, actions are completely, you know, self-drived and self-motivated. So it kind of, the notion of free will is kind of places you in a, in isolation in relation to the rest of the world because it's not something that you are a continual part and process of. Whereas I like the view that you are both something that is caused, but you have the capacity to cause as well. And so placing the focus more in your agency than then the things that precipitated it, I think just produces better outcomes overall. Yeah, interesting, interesting. I am. Um... I think that's such a like it's it's a huge rabbit hole um, to discuss. So, so I've got two more parts on this. Um, nature and nurture. Um, where do you where do you sit on those two things? I mean, it's got to be both, right? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. I don't know if there's much else I can say to that. Um, I think things are t like in terms of people's temperaments, I think we are, I don't know this for a fact, I'm fairly sure certain people are more um, kind of genetically predisposed to certain outcomes than we like to generally think. Mm -hmm. But at the same mm -hmm. time, it's kind of always back to that same determinism point of like, well, th there's no utility in emphasizing that it, it, you're always going to increase your chances by going, okay, well, assume that that's not true. And let's focus more on the nurture aspect. Uh, because that's going to be where you have the ability to overcome obstacles if that's uh, potential. That's where you have the ability to at least influence, you know, mm -hmm. the outcome, right? Because mm -hmm. you, you being um, an agent uh, in the deterministic progression of things, right? Um, okay. Um, have you have you ever listened to anything like any of Alan Watts's stuff? Um, you know, the English philosopher. Okay, there's one there's one thing that comes to mind from what he says, um, which I don't know if it relates to what we're talking about or not, but I'll, I'll chuck it in. He says that, you know, people's 
decision making, and I'm going to completely you know paraphrase and fuck this up, but it was something in the direction of people's decision making is something that occurs randomly. Goes people just they they want to make a decision and they can think about it, you know, for like a moment, or they can think about it endlessly. But when the moment of decision comes, they kind of like they just pick something anyway. Um, so, do do you think that's that's in support of this idea of like determinism or? I don't know if it's something I entirely agree with. I feel like it's always so context dependent. I mean, mm. it depends, right? If you're sitting in a restaurant and you're choosing between two dishes to order, you could say, and Sam Harris talks about this too, like, yeah, I'm, I don't really feel like I'm that in control of whatever menu item I did as I ultimately select, just kind of like, it could be a coin toss either way. Personally, I don't feel that way so much. If I'm choosing between two different dishes, it's like, okay, the one I order, I could tell you, oh, well, I decided that, you know, I already had something with a little bit of dairy in it earlier today. So I went for the thing that doesn't have dairy or whatever it is. Like there's always going to be some little thing that's tipping the scale slightly in one direction or the other. Um, but I guess maybe it varies on the person depending on how much you are self-aware of the things that are motivating your actions. It, it always kind of surprises me though when like Sam goes and does this a lot when he frames things like, yeah, I'm just kind of doing things, but I don't feel like I have any agency. That seems very uh, contradictory to my own experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I would I would agree with that. Okay. Um, is there anything else you want to add there or shall we dig into like uh, the structure of freedom, liberty, politics, morality and stuff? Sure. Yeah. Do, do you think there's any other bedrock that we need to set up though? Like um well maybe maybe let's start this with like how politics is downstream from morality let's let's maybe talk there first because i think people they they think that morality emerges from politics which couldn't be further from the truth so maybe let's hit that first um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a first principles, bottom up sort of thinker. So to me, the, the individual necessarily uh, predates the collective in terms of where your own actions are stemming from. Um, it, it doesn't really make sense to me to envision political institutions. Obviously, political institutions can have an impact on the behavior of individuals. But um, and if you're trying to kind of, from a philosophical standpoint, figure out a political system, it has to be predicated in the um, psychology of the people that are going to be in living inside of it. Because if there's some contradictory, if there's some contradiction there, then the system is just going to fall apart. So mm -hmm. to me, yeah, you always have to go from the bottom up and then not top down, because if you're kind of imposing things from a top down way, you might be uh, unintentionally introducing contradictions into the system that you're not cognizant of. But if you go the opposite direction, that's not going to be an issue. Um, how 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 is it not going to be an issue? Like, how, how do we avoid the contradictions going bottom up? Because if you're looking at all the agents in isolation and you're prescribing them a certain set of um, rules uh, regulating their interactions, you're not going to have any sort of emergent entity that doesn't. Um, what's the best way of saying this? I guess I just view everything in terms of this sort of critical realist framework of seeing reality in stratified layers. And so you can, going from the idea of like metaphysics to epistemology to ethics or something, you can kind of see a similar progression between 
the domains of mathematics to physics to chemistry to biology. Mm -hmm. You can't have a, a biological property that contradicts a fundamental pr principle mm -hmm. of mathematics. Um, biology has all this additional interesting information occurring inside of it that isn't reducible to mathematics entirely, but you'll, you'll never have a biological system where two plus two equals five. So if you're trying to top down engineer political systems that then have uh, are forcing its actors to behave by certain mechanisms, you might unintentionally kind of end up with a outcome where you're trying to force the agents to do something that's contradictory to their nature. So that's why I emphasize the nature of the agents first, and then you're trying to create an environment that makes it so that they can flourish as easily as possible. Yeah, so, so, so top down can basically wind up in the two plus two equals five situation, right? Be because yeah. it hasn't taken into account the foundation. Okay, um, you, you were gonna mention something else before I kind of chuck something in there. I don't know what I was gonna mention. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, all good. Um, another thing you talk about, so, so let's, let's build on this structure of freedom piece. So you talk about the difference between you know, rights um, and I don't know if you use the word entitlements or responsibilities. Um, can you talk through that a little bit? Um, oh, you, you can't have one without the other. <laughs> it's a simple equation. Um, relationship between rights and responsibilities. Yeah, I mean, essentially people nowadays love to talk about human rights and the idea that every person has a right to, you know, a roof over their head and good quality healthcare and education and all these amazing things. And I feel like this sounds like such an old talking point now, but if you're not, it's weird that we've come to accept it so broadly without ever considering the corollary implication, which is that any rights that you're demanding of the world imposes a obligation upon some other entity to be delivering those things to you. And so I, I like thinking of rights more so as a moral concept where mm -hmm. like people have a right to do whatever it is that they think is going to, you know, produce a meaningful life for themselves. But it's not a right that's a political promise because nothing can be kind of guaranteed in any sort of political system. It's just a matter of empowering like, yeah, yeah, you have a right to assert yourself essentially, but that's a moral principle. It's not a political one. Um, but the idea that you should have a right to yeah, certain um, luxuries, it just imposes upon some other aspect of the world to deliver those things to you. And then it begs the question of, well, how can you be saying that your desires are superior to somebody else's or whatever the case may be? Yeah, I so fundamentally agree with this. Like I, I kind of try to grapple with it um, when I wrote that Utopian Dystopias article and I kind of tried to distill all rights down to like, and you kind of said it the right to assert yourself like i called it the right to choose right and like i think i think almost all rights can boil down to that and then when you start to introduce you know other players into the system then you know you need some sort of framework uh in which you know your right to choose can remain uh sacrosanct uh without um i guess without being a detriment to another's right to choose. And that's where things like the silver rule and stuff like that um, come into play. But yeah, like, I, I couldn't agree more. Like I, I did a podcast with um, Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation. And I kind of like gave him shit about the whole human rights thing. It's like, there's so many human rights today, but it's like, there actually isn't any human rights. It's like, it's, it's you, you choose or you don't choose. Like, 
which is a choice, but like it's that that's the fundamental right of existence, I guess. Um, and and like you said, it's not something that is given to you by somebody. That that's sort of a a, a natural right of existence. You know, you have the capacity to choose. Um, and you know, if you want to interact with others, um, it's possibly a good idea not to you know enslave them and remove their right to choose uh should you wish to you know have some sort of social cohesion uh amongst other people yeah to secure so, your rights yourself you've got to um sacrifice your ability to infringe the same rights of other people and that way you've got some a notion of equality that's going to be stable mm-hmm. um you also in your episode about you know the is it called, was it called the structure of freedom or the structure of liberty? I can't remember. Structure of like, freedom. Structure of freedom. Okay, cool. Yeah. Like goldfish memory. I think the salt's getting to me. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> something else called another political text called the structure of liberty. So I couldn't do that, but I mean it's the same. <laughs> same thing. Um, you you talked about like the the problem uh, with majority rule, right? Which you know we we sort of know as democracy, and you know, I mean everyone runs around and talks about how you know, democracy is such a um, such an important thing and democracy is what makes free markets work. And I, I've actually always uh, railed against that. I'm like, no, no, no. Democracy was emerged from uh, free markets and, you know, the, the um, human beings working out, like, cause I, I, I believe like capitalism, if I was to define it as the process of, taking your own scarce resources, which is time and energy and mixing them with natural scarce resources to produce something of greater value, you know, sort of transforming chaos into order in a sense, like that, the, the, the capitalist process, um, because time, energy and natural resources are capital, um, that process kind of permeates all of existence. Since we, you know, first threw a fucking stick at an animal um, and we realized that, you know, if we threw a bent stick, it might hit the animal better. Like that, that is the capitalist process of like, you know, using less energy to, for, for a better outcome, right? So, so capitalism has always permeated um, existence. Like we want to do more with less. It's, mm-hmm. it's the natural process of innovation in life. And political systems kind of emerge from, you know, this process right like it, they, they're their attempts at trying to channel perhaps that energy or you know that that capitalist force so you know for, for me like democracy is a is a is an outcome or you know majoritarian rule is an outcome of free markets but for me it's like a if i zoom out it's it's almost like a transitory period because you know we and Hans-Hermann Hoppe talks about this a lot, you know, with, with the fall of monarchies, like we tried to create this, we tried to replace the king with some sort of, you know, majoritarian public institution with no skin in the game, you know, as an attempt to, you know, make society better. But in many ways we, we fucked it all up because we removed skin in the game from the rulers and all this sort of shit. But basically, um, I feel like democracy was almost an inevitable outcome of the free market experimentation. Um, but it's, it's the effect 
of free markets, not the other way around. So, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And yeah, you know, I, I totally agree with stuff. you. Um, I kind of view the world as like, to me, I always get confused when people describe anarchism as a political philosophy, because to me, that seems quite apparent that anarchism is just a description of the state of nature, like, like not the state of nature in terms of philosophical, but like just the state of reality is inherently going to be anarchical. Um, any institutions that kind of exist are going to be transient and their power is going to be relative to the other ones that are competing in the system. Um, and you can have, yeah, new states spring up at any time, essentially, and kind of uh, challenge the status quo. Um, and so, yeah, it, to, me, to me, the progression between anarchism to anarcho-capitalism is just those that also seems like a logical like you can't have one without the other because in any anarchical system capital is always going to be a way of communicating information and making things happen um and then you can follow that logic a little bit further and then go okay well if you want to live in a society that's protecting your rights and freedoms as much as possible then why wouldn't you be happy to provide some capital in order to make that system uh feasible which is then sort of the royalist monarchist uh position i guess you could say which is just using the the terminology of old in terms of wanting to have a source of concentrated power that's going to be the most effective at producing the outcomes you want to see um in the same way that like a ceo of a company would or something like that but then because it's being applied to a political institution just call them a monarch instead of a uh, i mean i guess president is versatile that goes both ways mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so Okay, before we get into the royalism, because I'm tempted to go down there, um, let, let's lay a few more sure. layers to this. Um, I guess one note I've got here is you mentioned, um, you know, in, in democracy, there's this idea that, you know, the, the people keep the government in check, but, you know, what about you know, who keeps the people in check? And you sort of get into this kind of loop, this, you know, that, that doesn't like um, make sense. Like I, I called it who watches the watchmen um, and, and who's sort of the final arbiter. So what, what's, what's an answer for that? And, and I guess this is gonna dump us right into the royalism thing anyway, but whatever. Like what, what, what's a way to, like, how, how, do you, how do you keep power in particular concentrated power in check? Like what's your thoughts there? Um, the truth is that like I, I basically any sort of solution you describe is always going to be fallible. That's kind of it, it's an eternal problem that is going to be struggled with in the podcast episode. I talk about how you've kind of got these countervailing forces of um, force and finance and mm -hmm. one can always uh, corrupt the other. And so you're always going to be it's like it, it, either somebody with a lot of money is going to come in and buy physical power in order to make the rules of the game more amicable towards them. Or they if they're not purchasing power, then they have physical force. And so it doesn't matter if somebody else has more money because they'll just go and grab it away from them. Um, so, so that's a problem that applies to basically any political system. If you're doing democracy, it's like, well, what if the the politicians get corrupt like that that's what the issue we're dealing with right now um broadly speaking that you can always have um force and finance kind of manipulating the the system to create unfair advantages uh so the solution i propose is essentially or it's not my <laughs> proposition this has come way before me uh curtis yarvin or mentious mole bug is the guy who coined the term royalism and kind of describes this really well 
um, in his online blog from like 2008. Um, but essentially the proposition is instead of trying to tease these two competing forces apart, and I kind of talk about in the episode how it's like conservatives tend to be more concerned with um, abuses of physical force and being coerced into doing things they don't want to do, whereas liberals are more concerned with, well, what happens when one in person or institution gets too much monetary ability to kind of coerce things, which can only happen in an institution where you're able to purchase political power. So the idea is, well, if you just unite these two things and make them really strong, but really um, easy to identify and pinpoint as, well, this is the source of all localized um, uh, finance, it's got all the money and it's also got as much uh, physical power as is possible, then there's nobody that can kind of buy off the king or go and kill him in the middle of the night and take over the power because that they you've centered both of these um, ways of empowering in like one node, um, which can, you know could fall at any time, I suppose. But the idea is, well, hmm that's a better solution towards at least insofar as if, if you're just taking for granted, well, the state is going to survive in this um, inception, that's the best way to produce productive outcomes. I don't think I really answered your question there. <laughs> you got a little off track. All good, all good, off track is great. Um, I mean, the, the, I, I don't know if there, there is even um, an answer like I, I, I have some ideas here which sort of um, pertain to uh, scale um, you know removing the financial power and, and competition in general which which I think are things like I just want to bookmark them for a second because there's some other notes that I want to make but I get what you mean I, I think the, the idea of um, yeah creating a node um, I think that's good terminology where you know it where there's no confusion. Like I, I was actually saying this to someone the other day, like with the whole El Salvador thing and, you know, them making Bitcoin legal tender and someone's like, yeah, well, you know, the president's the dictator. I was like, well, I would prefer a dictator over a fucking democracy because at least it's clear, you know what I mean? Like that there's none of this sort of veiled bullshit that goes on behind the scenes because like then there's no one to pinpoint. Like it's just this sort of this, you know, in a democracy, there is no one to hold accountable, but over here, like, you know, that guy. Um, and, and I think that's a, you know, maybe it's a unpopular opinion um, or an uncon unconventional opinion, maybe not to the people listening to the podcast, but I think in general, like people, you know, believe this sort of illusion that some sort of, you know, public entity elected by, you know, the people or whatever is the ideal uh, structure for, for rule, but I don't know, have you, have you read Democracy, The God That Failed by Hans Hermann Hopper? Uh, no, I haven't. Holy shit, you would love that. Like, I think, um, I know we keep giving each other homework, but like that one, like each, each chapter is so dense. Like you just read one chapter and sort of be done with the book, but like each chapter is so dense that, you know, he, he kind of makes the, he, he destroys the notion of, um, The idea of like a you know a a a group of people without skin in the game can be uh, elected um, or supposedly elected by by people 
um, to perform functions for a short period of time um, for property they have no ownership in and therefore have no reason to care about long-term. And, and it kind of like introduces the really the wrong incentive in society. Um, and you get people who don't care about the capital, they care about the, the cash flow. So, so they care about milking the system as much as they can for the period that they're in it um, without considering the long-term repercussions and consequences. So he, he makes a case actually for how monarchies were superior to uh, democracy because the monarch actually had um, skin in the game. Like he had a vested interest in, uh, you know, the continuation of uh, his rule, you know, whether or through the continuation of his dynasty empire or whatever the case, you know, might be. Um, notwithstanding the fact that you do get some retards, you know, in monarchies, but, you know, he, he lays out a whole series of examples of how, you know, monarchs had their own natural limitations based on how much wealth they had, you know, and because war was extremely expensive, you know, they would, you know, marry their children off instead and create an alliance, which was a, a better way to settle a conflict than to go and blow each other up, um, which is what we seem to do in democracies. So there's a whole, there's a whole thing there. Um, yeah, one thing I want to mention, it seems like yeah. when you're asking about kind of why we are we all like the idea, or we're taught to like the idea of democracy so much, is it's tapping into um, sort of a truth about the, the fact that groups of people can have a collective intelligence that's higher than any single individual, but that it doesn't, the, the method of, of obtaining that intelligence isn't through, well, everybody just kind of pool. It's like democracy is trying to mimic the um, benefits of a complex adaptive system where you've got all these different people going off and kind of making their own calls and then somehow the whole does this amazing thing that's better than any of the parts of it but the problem is that those are all agents in the ant colony or something that are self-motivated they're not doing anything mm -hmm. they're not all getting together in a big circle and all the ants are kind of saying okay boys tomorrow we're going north and they all go north together like that's what a democracy does in a complex system it's like all the ants are kind of doing whatever and then if it turns out there's a big pile of food north then the system will naturally pull more and more ants towards that direction so yeah it, royalism is essentially taking the notion of complexity and applying it to markets which is then going to generate political systems but those political systems can be very variable and changeable and they can be um it, it doesn't have to be just one node that's complete top-down control the idea is you want to have a myriad of different systems that are all operating by different principles. And then the, the subjects, the agents are able to move between the systems in accordance with what is representing their values most accurately. So the same way, it's not like you go to the grocery store and you're all voting on if they're gonna have bananas or bread tomorrow. It's like the, the, the consumers are naturally creating a demand that then the store is fulfilling. But it, so it's like there's the collective intelligence is occurring but it's not a consequence of a democratic process. Absolutely. I, I, the, the, the example there about like buying fucking bananas at a store is perfect. And I always use this example to try and explain to people like how stupid voting is, for example, like, you know, like when, when you really start to, to break down voting, like economic action, you know, is voting. Like I, you know, when I buy a banana or I buy you know, a piece of meat, that, that's actually my vote. Um, in the most meaningful sense, as opposed to me getting together with a group of people um, and deciding that we should all eat fucking steak this week. And then the poor vegetarian is like, well, I don't want to. So then he's got to go out and lobby everyone to convince everyone that we should all eat 
vegetables this week, not meat. And it's sort of, it's the most inefficient way for collective systems to function um, as opposed to just letting, you know, individuals be agents and actually decide, and which is, that's where sort of the difference between, um, you know, free market thinking and, you know, democratic thinking actually, I, I think that's where the line can really be drawn. Um, and, you know, democracy just being kind of like we stated earlier, an, an attempt to try and channel collective thinking um, based on, you know, so, it, these days it's not even the majority. These days it's whoever fucking screams and bitches the loudest um, basically gets what they want. You know, we sort of live in the oppression Olympics. It's like, I'm a, I'm a single mom with three retarded babies and I should have more than you should. And, you know, it, it's just fucking wild like how how that like deranges itself but all right we're on the same page there um I, man there's, there's a whole little section in here where i want to talk about um i want to challenge the idea of might is right um because i know you mentioned that and that this is sort of for me um ties in with with anarchism because i know you had some i guess what's the word uh criticism, I guess, of, of anarchism and, and anarcho-capitalism, I guess, in, in, in episode six. Um, but you, you mentioned might is right. Um, and in a way that that's sort of, I don't know how nature organizes itself, but am I, am I putting words in your mouth here or like, am I? Um, here, well, what would I say? Yeah, well, it's not necessarily much a critique of anarchism or anarcho-capitalism. It's just that these those are insufficient as in terms of a political philosophy. Saying I'm an anarchist or I'm an anarcho-capitalist doesn't tell anyone else anything meaningful about like, okay, well, what consequence does that have on my life? Because if the idea is, well, just use your money to go and purchase the best political system. Okay, well, what does it look like? You're evading the more difficult questions of politics. Um, in terms of might being right, I, I, I guess that kind of ties into sort of the Machiavellian point of view that um, the, there is some natural kind of, well, yeah, if you, if you want to create effective outcomes, you need to have some power <laughs> in some capacity. Um, and, and then I guess the question being, if over the long term, abuses of power are going to naturally kind of fall by the wayside of the mm. system because they aren't principled in a way that means that they produce more effective outcomes. So might is both right and not right. It depends on if you're looking on a short-term timescale or long-term timescale, mm. right? So you could say being a bully in the short term, you know, instead of learning how to fish, you go and kill a fisherman and eat his food or something like, okay, great, you ate that night. But then if you just go around attacking other people to get resources, then you haven't actually learned anything. And so then long-term, well, you're gonna starve to death because you never learned how to fish. So the, the, the might of the fishermen in terms of the ones who are creating lots of, selling lots of fish and creating markets for it and selling, and then they're getting, gaining power that is deserved in some sense. So it kind of goes both ways. Yeah, interesting. So so I, I like the idea about the, the time scales because I think, scale is something people rarely ever talk about, you know, scale in terms of, you know, quantity, but also scale in terms of timeframes. Um, and because like my notes here is like, you know, I'm not sure I agree with might is right. You know, might is a relative term. Um, you know, I was like making, I was going to make a point that competence and merit are actually what 
drive um, yes, yes, position. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but to your point, like, you know, competence and merit are, are long-term sustainable, uh, whereas in, in, you know, many cases, um, you know, violence is, is short-term, I guess, gives you the, the illusion of benefit. Um, but like you said, you go and shoot the fucking the farmer um and then i mean typical ussr right like they they killed all the farmers and then they died of starvation so like it's um you know does that open up the question of like you know do the you know does the does the discussion of a you know political system perhaps deal with you know more the the short-term behavior of the individuals um, within a society or within a, within a group um, because sort of the, the longer term, the longer term corrective mechanism for behavior is, um, you know, is sort of driven by underlying competence and merit. Like, so, so that kind of takes care of itself perhaps, um, you know, the system corrects itself for competence and merit longer term, but it's like, how do we, how do we, I don't know, manage in a sense, management will be the right word, but sort of the, the short-term predisposition for violence by stupid people who don't want to put the time in for competence and merit. Like, would that be a, like, I don't know if I'm asking a question there, but like, would that be a valid statement question? I don't know. I, I guess, I well, as you're talking, I'm kind of just thinking about different forms of power and how we kind of think mm. of that by definition being a negative thing but that's not necessarily true the the question power always begs is like well how did it come to be in that position because you can have somebody who's powerful based off of their merit and they're using it for good ends and then you want you want powerful people in that context what you don't want is powerful people that have it just because they happened upon it and are undeserving so yeah i guess my point generally is that like over what you're saying over the long term, those abuses of power are naturally going to get weeded out of the, any system just because they're not sustainable long term. And I think that's a fundamental like tr truth of reality. Um, so in terms of persuading people of, away from those sorts of abuses, I don't know how much utility there is there in, other than just like, yeah, I mean, it's not effective but those people don't seem like they'd be very interested in listening either so i think you just kind of let the, the matter sort itself out on its own yeah well well i guess that's where um the hold on i'm just gonna pop some notes here that that's where kind of the idea of a political system then emerges right so so that the, the function of a political system is how do you uh, minimize the the short-term noise that you know, emerges from people trying to fucking shoot themselves and use violence as a means of acquiring power, as opposed to to competence and merit. Um, and I'm just spitballing here. You know, like um, maybe that's actually what um, a political system or a social system is actually trying to solve. It's not trying to solve the long term uh, natural corrective mechanism of um, a complex system which gets better through um, competence and merit. It's actually trying to solve the the short term uh, the short term propensity of individuals to try and you know find a shortcut to power. Um, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Okay. Um, let's uh, let's let's then roll into royalism and citadels, um, which you know Bitcoiners would would call it. So um, th this for me definitely like when when you sent me um, it was Mencius Molbug who wrote the patchwork, right? Um, yeah, when you when you sent me that, like, and I just saw the the title, like, it just straight up like resonated with me. Um, I was like, fuck yes, because I've always actually, you know, when I was younger, you know, the, the people that I read about, you know, the, the heroes that inspired me were people like you know William Wallace or you know Alexander the Great or you know Attila the Hun or Julius Caesar, like, you know, sort of. And yes, you know, in the ancient times there was a lot of you know. Uh, climbing to power through you know killing and slaughtering your enemies and shit like that but th there was a there was a level of competence you know that was required in order to be a king right like in order to have you know some sort of um royalty and, and i i truly 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 believe in you know the idea of like regality royalty like you know nobleman you know and and sort of like um like in a, an emergent set of you know individuals who um who kind of rise above the rest not by vote but by you know natural competence like so so anyway that when i when i saw the book like i bought it straight away and i haven't read it yet but it just listening to your episode whether it was seven or eight whichever one it was just just really resonated with me so can we can we talk through a little bit about you know, royalism and some of the premises of sure. it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess the easiest way to describe it is uh, um, I just like to think of it in terms of instead of having a, a debate with your friend or family member or whatever about, you know, what political outcomes are most desirable, just take the entire debate off the table by saying, look, what if you and I could both just pay to create the sorts of societies that we want to live in and then go and live in them and do our own thing? then we can both have what we want and there's no conflict uh, between the two of us. The, the only uh, barrier to entry is having the ability to finance your way into this new hypothetical political system. But even that isn't really a barrier if you think about money as just being a shorthand for value and the fact that, you know, I think if you were to have some smart new sovereign, I like using the example of Elon Musk just because it's funny. If he used to suddenly tomorrow come online and be like, okay, guys, I've secured some little secret island and I've made it really, really cool. And there's self driving cars and underground tunnels and solar panels and Wi Fi from space and all these amazing amenities. And you can come live here for the low price of $10,000 a year, which is like, you know, what most people pay in taxes. Or if you don't have that much money, you can come and because we're offering all these amenities, we need people to pave the roads and weed the gardens and stuff like that. You can just come and we'll hire you as like a indentured servant, I guess, sort of thing. And you can live in the society and pay for the cost of it through, through your labor. So to me, royalism is a very exciting way of essentially um, providing a system of ideas that allows people to kind of conceptualize different political systems. And then also, I think it's genuinely the most meaningful method of implementation moving into the future. Like, I think we're definitely going to be seeing new countries seems a little bit ambitious. But what you said of like, citadels or charter cities, like small stalling and starting in small uh, micro communities that are just exploring or experimenting with different sorts of rule structures and stuff like that. 
you're going to start seeing all these different ways of living coming about, propping up all over the world, um, being financed by people just going and like extricating themselves from the political systems that they don't enjoy so much. And slowly you'll start approximating better and better systems over time by like market mechanisms. Could not agree more. Like this is one of the biggest memes in the whole Bitcoin space is like this idea of us exiting, um, you know, the, the idiot globalists who want to sort of turn us into one homogenous sludge and kind of like start building and creating our own. Uh, and that's why we kind of call them citadels, but it's, it's basically charter city states, kind of like, you know, what you mentioned is, is the idea that you have a contract um, with effectively, like I almost view them as kind of like the hotel or resort model, right? Like you, you go to a hotel or a resort and you know you get a specific set of amenities that you are paid for. Um, and yeah, for me, like I think of it as a, as a membership model. Um, mm -hmm. And I've, I've, I've had this discussion with so many people. I, you know, I, I think the future is one of, you know, people paying voluntary memberships to live within cities as opposed to having um, their, you know, their wealth stolen from them by the state um, for services that, you know, you don't use, that you don't want, that are in disrepair and that, you know, genuinely fucking suck because there's no market incentive to make them better, mm -hmm. right? And, and and that's kind of like, I, I call it the, the moving, like the transformation of uh, where we are today, which is, I think we've got, you know, with our rulers, we have a overlord subject relationship and I think, you know, as the world progresses, you know, it's going to move into a customer service provider relationship, mm -hmm. which kind of fits to me with this, with this charter city state um, sort of idea. But I guess, you know, that requires a couple of things. Like it requires um, competition. Um, and I, I, I don't know if we should introduce sort of Bitcoin here, but like, I don't believe we can get there um, without like without humans uh, facing, without being close enough to economic consequence. And this is sort of where the, the whole Bitcoin um, thing really comes to fruition for me, like, and, and why I think Bitcoin is so important is that in the absence of Bitcoin, like large scale nation states and countries, what we have today in this sort of push towards like, you know, globalist government, it can only, happen when they fund themselves through you know indirect taxation i just fucking printing of money um mm -hmm. and through you know direct coercive taxation and through you know i guess the other indirect method which is you know regulatory uh moats you know so that way you end up getting you know wh whoever is close enough to the monetary spigot has the capacity to be in the inner circle and have an unfair advantage in the marketplace relative to everybody else such that you end up getting these unnatural concentrations of power um, which is kind of you know the, the world we live in today and like for me you know until we until we break that economic fucking fantasy um, and kind of move towards a more um, economic reality you know with bitcoin um, you know being separated out like and this is where you know i'm going to write a note here like the, the separation of money and state is really um where Bitcoin sort of really fits in. Um, and then what it does is it actually forces not 
through coercion, but just forces uh, through economic reality, um, whether it's a sovereign or a, you know, a private city provider to actually provide a service um, that is of value to the buyer um, because they can't fuck around with the money um, and still, you know, enrich themselves irrespective of, you know, what the, what the client or the consumer wants. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't know if you've got any comment on that, but I just wanted to sort of talk through like how we get there and, you know, what, what your thoughts are in terms of like the, the process from where we are today to, to the I definitely think there's a lot of value in just reframing how people think about conceptualize their relationship to their government. Um, And instead of buying into this democratic ideal of I'm going to vote to create the changes I wanna see around me and I'm going to go and, you know, campaign for other people to do the same. And you get this really slow um, kind of like ineffective process that produces a result that's not really what anyone wants because it's had to bend to other so many other people's whims and stuff like that as it's evolved right like nobody is getting nobody wins in a democratic system because it has to kind of be too accommodating to what too many people want simultaneously um so yeah seeing yourself as not voting to change the circumstance that you exist inside of but instead of you relocating to a system that's going to accommodate your values as closely as possible um, there's this idea that I talk about in the podcast where like, um, another reason I don't like anarchism is because they kind of try to create a separation between the notion of, um, protection and the relationship that it necessarily must have to land where there's this idea of like, oh yeah, people can just have private protection agencies and you can have all these people living in a community together, even if they're not regulated by any overall central authority, that's going to make sure that there's consistency in the interactions, there's going to be all these just disparate regulatory agencies that are going to have to duke it out. To me, it seems quite apparent that like laws have to apply to physical land and space. And you can ensure that those laws are being enforced because of the fact that you've got a monopoly of um, authority on that territory. And so thinking about the rules that you are subject to is not something that you are customizing your like your environment surrounding environment to cater to your preferences but rather well if i want to live somewhere where there's um it's really really cheap to live there's like really low taxes um and you know people build their own roads or whatever like that's an option and i go and live where that's going to be enabled and supported or you go and live in some little gated community where the rules are much more strict and you're paying a higher premium but then you're also getting access to higher quality services but so seeing yourself as like it it should be on the the individual agent to relocate themselves into the context that is going to make them the happiest and maybe that'll change over time rather than trying to customize your environment to cater to your needs in the short term. Um, And that kind of has principles that tie in with complexity as well, but I'm not sure if I wanna get into that, Um, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, okay, let's let's jump into it because I I do wanna also dig into the the private land ownership stuff um, and then kind of, yeah, there's so much shit here I want to dig into. So, um, so, so, talk talk to me about the um, how it ties into competition. Um, or complexity. Oh, sorry, complexity, yeah. complexity. Fuck. Yeah. No worries. Um, and it's hard because I've not really kind of like to me something about the notion of having 
competing political landscapes and then you're seeing yourself as you're situating yourself into these different environments um, and the environments can still kind of evolve and change over like a longer term to cater to people's needs. Um, but yeah, essentially just you putting yourself into a system that's going to um, support your values the, mo the most effectively. If everybody's doing that, then over the long term, you're going to start seeing well, the most effective sovereign that's offering the best package deal is going to get more money and more power, and then they can expand their domain or their territory. And you get these feedback loops that are then going to have these market mechanisms essentially creating desirable political ends. Okay, yep, 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 yep. I wanna talk about, you just reminded me, I wanna talk about dynamic equality as well, um, or that maybe I should call it dynamic inequality. Um, and, costs um okay um yes so so i think that, that that sort of reminds me of how again like how natural free markets work right like if you're if you're a good business operator um and you run a really good cafe um you have you know you can then roll out and open another cafe um, and you can sort of double your productivity and, you know, double your, I think it's that sort of compounding. You might want to create a franchise, et cetera, et cetera. And, and almost like, I actually think that long-term we're probably going to have franchised models for cities. Um, in fact, have, have you heard of the, um, the Prospera group and like what they're doing in Honduras? Not vaguely Prospera. Yeah, Prospera. So it's it's. I think the website's Prospera.hn. Um, so I'm I'm going to be swinging over there in like the next month or two. But they've basically, effectively, got a charter. Um, they've got. Uh, I think it's. I don't remember the size of it now, but it's a big chunk of Royal Ten Island that they've got a. Uh, they've got an agreement with the Honduran government that, you know, they've got their own jurisdiction. Um, it's their own rules. Um, and and they're kind of like a. They're kind of almost like a governance provider um, and they've got a you know, 1% flat company tax rate, 1% flat uh, property tax rate and a 10% flat um, uh, employee tax rate. And the, the, the agreement that they've got with the Honduran government is that the government is gonna be able to earn 12.5% of you know, the, the income that is generated from this private city. So, so like th this stuff is beginning um, to occur. Like that's an example of that. And they, they want to long-term uh, if, you know, kind of figure out the model and, you know, perhaps franchise it long-term. I, I know my personal ambition long-term is, you know, I want to grow Amber, which is the, you know, the Bitcoin app that I've got today. Then I want to take a few years of like, I want to do some writing. But then after that, I actually want to go build private cities. I, I just think that that is the next trillion dollar industry um, or, you know, multi-bitcoin industry um since we're not going to be using dollars anymore <laughs> but like it's um the when 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 the paradigm shifts towards that service provider and customer relationship um in a city versus the overlord subject relationship that we have now you actually get improvement um versus what we have today like and you you mentioned it in in your pod is like any government service that you look at, whether it's roads or buildings or fucking, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's, there's no, there's no incentive to make the shit better. So it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And we're sort of like destroying everything we have around us. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's got to break at some point. Sorry, go on. 
But yeah, I was gonna say like lots of the faults that people identify with capitalism as well, I think so much more often are actually a consequence of having really crappy government infrastructure where everyone hates living in a city that's parking lots and roads and traffic lights and big box stores. We all agree it's ugly and horrific and we don't like it. And it's, you know, it's serving utilitarian ends in the short term. So I'm not like, you know, too upset about it or whatever. But it's like the, the only thing that's stopping us from living in cities that are completely autonomous vehicles and uh, pedestrians and cyclists and, you know, big, long, beautiful gardens and European style architecture and all the rest of it. It's because there's no economic incentive for the government to start providing those things to you. Um, and even if some private developer wanted to go and create the, all those things um, in some sort of you know fancy gated community or whatever it is, then they're paying such ridiculous taxes on everything. It's not really feasible because it's occurring within a system that's constraining their abilities to do things so much. Like so much, so much of the distastefulness of our current environment is a consequence of regulatory bodies that are like enforcing certain standards that we, nobody likes, but um, like, I, I know in my city, my mom was saying like, there has to be for every, um, you know, three office workers in the downtown or something, there has to be one parking space, something like that. So then you, of course, you just have a whole downtown that's just parking lots everywhere and nobody likes it, but like, it's because you're creating uh, what you were saying earlier, but like, you know, top-down structures not lasting for the tem temporary environments cars are only like a hundred year technology more or less, right? Like very quickly we'll be moving to a spot where that's no longer necessary. And suddenly we've got all of these legacy uh, rules which are inhibiting where, where our technology is uh, brought us to. So yeah, there's a, there's a really big contradiction happening which is also part of the benefit of having a monarchical system is because if you just have one person who can go, oh yeah, this rule doesn't make any sense anymore. We're gonna get rid of that one you can do it overnight rather than having it, all these changes kind of accumulate and nobody's really thinking about these things and all the rest of it. And then you just have all these bad um, constraints pile up and no incentive to break them apart again or kind of reassess them. 100%. The, the, the cars thing makes me laugh actually because I was, um, I was speaking to someone about this and you, you know, you always like the, the, the classic, uh, statist rebuttal to to libertarian is like who's gonna build the roads right it's like i actually have a theory that um had it not been for you know government confiscation of you know people's wealth um you know going towards building roads i actually don't think we would have the ugly ass fucking congested cities and highways and all that sort of shit like we would have actually worked out far better ways like the market itself would have worked out far better ways for transport and for like uh, I guess, communal density um, or city density, C kind of like what we had, and you mentioned this is like Europe, like before we had the fucking roads, you know, you've got like in Europe, like these beautiful pedestrian walking cities where you can get everything, you just walk around. Like you go to a modern city, you can't fucking get anywhere. Like it's impossible to get anywhere. The, the, and there's no public transport or the public transport's a fucking disaster. Um, and I actually think that's a function of, I wish we never had roads like you know it's it's I, I think it's a really inefficient uh transportation mechanism but yeah absolutely. Anyway, that's a subsidizing and inefficient technology that's you know creating a lot of pollution and all the rest of it and going on stations exactly. like um you know like if you go to Paris or something like the entire city is like six floor buildings the reason we don't see that so much in North America is because there's building codes that require, oh, after three floors, you have to install an, ele uh, an elevator. 
so it's handicap accessible even though like 99% of your population doesn't require that. And you could have a much more, you know, charming city if you could build these buildings that would be great for like storefronts on the bottom and people can live up top and all the rest of it. It's not allowed. And so then you don't see, you know, nice things being implemented. Madness. Okay, I'm so glad we agree on that. That's fucking hilarious. Um, okay, so, so I wanted to dig into to private land ownership. Um, so you, you kind of made a, a statement, which is a statement that I've made in the past and I, 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 I want to, like Stefan Kinsella, who I had on in a previous um, podcast, kind of talked about this. But, you know, my point was, you know, private property, you know, in terms of land is that which you can defend. Um, and you, I think you kind of said something similar in your pod. So can you talk me through like that and, you know, what, what your position is on private land ownership, et cetera? I'm really curious about this one. Yeah, um, going off of what I said before about the state being an entity that necessarily must exist kind of over a given territory in order for it to exert meaningful control means that the state is the one securing your property, exactly what you just said. And so the, the extent to which you own your house and the land that it's built on is entirely dependent upon, well, it, how uh, the long-term like longevity of the country that you're existing inside of. Because the moment the country collapses, you can't go and tell the foreign invaders like no, no no you don't understand like i own this house you can bring like your phone and your money with you and run in the opposite direction but the land itself it's like that's going to be the property of whoever is occupying the territory and so part of the kind of political framework that i describe is that um one a valid issue that people often identify with capitalism is the fact that yeah you know first not first come first serve but like people having a legacy ownership over land which they purchased a long time ago or was passed down through their family or whatever that's then increased in value over time means that they have kind of unearned monopoly power in a domain that's like land is kind of obviously there's lots of limited resources but that's something where you're not making any more of it and um, it's kind of unique in terms of it can't be it can't be moved around and so it's it is what it is and um, what am I trying to say? Essentially, give me a second. Sure, I think people need to rent their land from the government is where I'm going because that's something that you, you, you can't own in perpetuity. And the state is what's making your occupation, occupation of that territory um, possible in the first place. And so it makes sense that like, you know, if the, if the, if you're occupying more space then that's going to be more costly to the government and stuff like that. Um, so to me, it just seems like a, it's called Georgism is the mode of like using uh, rents on land as like the general form of taxation. And I kind of think you can have a mixed taxation model where you're doing different things uh, in that sort of like subscription service, right. For, to pay for the amenities that people are using. But to me, the notion of instead of a single individual owning their land in perpetuity, that's going to generate um, like unfair monopolistic power. And so if you're paying annual rents on the territory, then that's a way of guaranteeing that you're not getting like rent seeking behavior where you have a landlord who's not providing any additional value and they're still collecting a check year after year. If they're paying for uh, continual rent on the land, then you're kind of equalizing the playing field a little bit. And there's a philosophical justification for doing that um, because land has this, different property and necessary relationship to the government that other forms of private property don't possess. Yeah, interesting. Um, 
Hmm. How do we dig into this one? So, so start where we agree. So, so I, I agree that land does have a slightly different relationship, and and I hadn't thought about this. It's, you know, the the capacity to take it with you, right? Um, so that's interesting. Um, and then, you know, your capacity to. I mean, your capacity to occupy the land is not entirely dependent on the state, but um, I guess, you know, the, the ability to abstract um, your, I guess, abstracting your ability to protect the land or, or have your private property rights uh, upheld um, you know, is easier when you know there is a there is a larger state there. I, I don't know about this idea of um, renting. You know, renting the land from the state because I guess um, I don't know. Like you, I don't know what sort of incentives that introduces into the system. Is like you know, when it's not yours, you don't really take care of it. Like it's kind of. Um, I think it introduces good um, incentives for environmental protections, actually, because if you own the land, then, you know, there's not like, and you discover there's some valuable resource on it or something, you're going to be extracting that resource as fast as you possibly can and turning a profit on it. And that's not really accounting for the fact that it's the existence of the state, which is enabling that extraction to occur in the first place. Um, and go on. I was, I was, I was going to rebut that one with, um, let's use tree logging as an example. So, you know, you, you can sort of log trees, tre trees, you got a forest and there's three mechanisms uh, via which you can extract the timber from the forest. So you sort of have the, the complete uh, collectivist model, like the, the USSR or communism who have no pricing signals and they just want to determine how much of the wood everybody gets. So they deforest the whole fucking place with no, price signals and they completely fuck it up. So, you know, the wrong people get too much wood and the wrong people get too little wood and it's a disaster, right? Mm -hmm. um, the second method is kind of what you're describing, which is, you know, um, in a sense, some sort of almost public ownership of it. Um, or maybe it's not public ownership because you're talking about a sovereign owning it. Yeah, the government's mm -hmm. the custodian and they get to set the rules by which the citizens need to interact with the land so i like it because that way you can have strong rules against like pollution and um you know yeah de de deteriorating the natural resources the government can step in and say well yeah you can log but you can only do this amount per year or you have to replant this quantity or something it's in the government's long-term interest to have um healthy uh, land available rather than well, somebody just going to jump in make a quick buck and jump out again and then they're they've washed their hands of it P perhaps so, so i think there's a natural corrective mechanism in private property that enables the you know the the the, the preservation of the capital without needing you know the the rule to be enforced by by a sovereign so so in in, in the scenario where you've got the well I'll, I'll use today as a scenario more so than your hypothetical example of a prince because because I think there's something else there like because I, I would argue that you know that the prince is actually the private property owner 
but mm -hmm. to, to a larger degree. But but if we if we look at today's you know public property ownership structure, which is the government is the custodian of this forest that I mentioned before. So so in the first case, the government is the custodian and owner of the forest, and they distribute the wood and they fuck it all up because they have no pricing signals. In the second one, they say, all right, the government is the custodian of the forest. But hey, you know, as a government, we're not sure how to distribute the wood. So we will allow private enterprises to come in and, you know, to, to, to harvest the lumber um, because they have a, um, they, they are in touch with the marketplace and, you know, they know how to price it better so they can more efficiently extract the lumber and you know, distribute it in the marketplace. So we will rent them a license to do so. Now, the problem in this scenario is that those who rent the licenses, so, so you know, the, I guess that the tenants, so, so not the custodian of the, the resource itself, they're actually incentivized to, to make the most they can um, of the license whilst they can. And even if there is some sort of restrictions placed by, you know, the, the owner of the land, you know, they, they can be influenced to say that, hey, we need more fucking wood because the market is booming. So we need to get this. So, so what they do is like that there is, there is a natural tendency to rape and pillage the resource because the, that, the entity who is renting it for the, the sake of generating cash flow doesn't have a capital cost um, underneath. Uh, so, so they'll want to just use it up and then move on to the next. Whereas in the third scenario where you have private property ownership of the forest. So if I'm the, the, the company that is producing the lumber, but I also own the forest, I would be a fucking moron to go and chop down all my trees in the first year and not replant anything because I'll put myself out of business. So mm -hmm. I want to look after my land um, and take care of it. And, and in much the same way as like, you know, owning your own slab of land, your own house, your own car, for example. Like I know if I rent a car, fucking hell, like I take speed bumps at 150 kilometers an hour <laughs> just to see how much air I can get. But I don't do that in my own car. <laughs> so it's like, so, so I, I, I feel like there's a, um, there's a tricky thing here. So, so maybe the introduction of a, you know, of a monarch or a prince or a president or, or some sort of thing there, you know, in a sense, um, acts as the private property owner as opposed to a more faceless public property owner. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, but see, I guess maybe my argument here is that doesn't remove the notion of private property; it just puts it at a different scale, perhaps. So yeah, I, I agree with your critiques and what you're saying about, yeah, it's best to have one person who's looking to, they've got a vested long-term interest in the health of the land. And so exactly what you're saying in terms of, yeah, technically there is somebody who's privately owning the land, it's just the sovereign, but then the subjects that are coming and going, my thought process is that essentially, if you're thinking about like that, if, you're, if you've just got that uh, forest or something and you're the person who's protecting it, from other people coming and messing with it and maybe you want like some people to come and do some logging but you're not going to be that person you're just gonna um contract that workout and make it available for other people to come and do it because you're occupied with just preserving the space then that's when the the idea of rents becomes a valuable tool i think because if you're saying oh i'll just sell this scrap of forest to you in perpetuity that i'm protecting then you're getting a one-time payment for something that you're going to be paying for you know, however long into the future. And so you're actually- why, why are you paying for it into the future? As the, do you mean as the sovereign, you're paying for it because you still need to protect it or? Yeah, yes. 
Yeah, the cost okay. of protection is something that's going to, you know, be, it's going to have some sort of, uh, maybe you build a big wall on the first year and then you're paying off the cost in subsequent ones or something. But there's always going to be some sort of cost associated with protecting the state. And that'll, of course, vary depending upon what sort of external threats are making that land more or less valuable. Um, so, yeah, if somebody pays once, then they're actually getting too good of a deal because you can't go and continue to be like, hey, it's still costing me money to protect this for you to profit off of. So I need to see some of that, please. And the, then also what you're saying, if you have somebody who is a bad actor who decides, oh, I'm going to step in and buy this and then just clear cut this entire little scrap and maybe the rest of the forest is fine because that's being managed by this other person, but you're still operating by whatever, you know, short-term profit principles. Whereas if the person who's renting you the land has the ability to say, well, actually, no, you can only, you know, extract things in these ways, or you can only pollute these sorts of chemicals into the air or whatever it is, then they're going to be ensuring that the quality of the land is maintained over time, because that means that once you're done logging this little bit of forest and planting some new trees or doing whatever it is, and you leave, the next person can come in and continue to profit off of it. So as a sovereign, you're making money long-term rather than just in the short term. Yeah, but what about um, the sovereign charging for protection services? Anyway, I don't, I don't think they're losing money by selling the land to private property owners um, in the first place. Because I feel like that, that that kind of ends up trending back towards um, a state with you know a more traditional monopoly. Because because I guess you know I, I've got a note in here that says that you know the the prince um, you know the royal is is you know the the owner of the property, you know, to a larger, you know, to, at a larger scale, right? Um, but you know, in order for the prince to um, to remain honest, and this kind of answers the question of who watches the watchman, is like, you know, he must remain at risk of challenge, um, and that challenge must come from competing private property owners. Um, hence, the natural requirement for what I kind of call like lords or nobles. So it's like, you know, w without like I, I feel like a a complex system has to have, um, you know, challenge sort of inbuilt. Um, and if, you know, one entity has total private property rights, uh, whereas all other entities only have transient, you know, rental rights, like um, you don't get the natural, um, you know, competitive nature. Like there's, there's, there's a book I might recommend called, um, the Territorial Imperative. It's it's an anthropological book by a guy called Robert Audrey. Okay. And, you know, me reading that, like, it kind of made me, um, like, so, so, so he makes the point that before sex as the driver for, um, you know, natural selection, it's actually territory is the fundamental driver of all um, natural selection in, in evolution. And, and all of nature actually uses territory um, as the, the means uh, through which to organize itself and find equilibrium. And, and for me, like I kind of view private property as the, um, the human or social man, like, you know, the, the human social manifestation of the territorial imperative, like the sort of biological innate um, link we have, have with land. And, and, and I just think that, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe in my patchwork, section of the city <laughs> i will sell the land to other people because i feel like if i sell it to them they will take better care of it um, now in the contract 
you know, there could be uh, rules around what they can do. Um, maybe not what they can do with the land, but what they can do with, you know, perhaps chemicals or pollution that might affect other landowners, in which case, you know, there'll be some sort of, um, you know, penalty associated with that. But, but I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I can't seem I to get on board even, with I the idea of- On different levels of scale, because what you're saying mm. about, well, yeah, if that one um, power authority has all the power over the land, then of course, yeah, they're gonna have monopolistic power and they can kind of um, inhibit other competition internally. Yeah, yeah, of course, but that's part, that's the point, right? That the, you want to have as much power exercised over this given territory as possible in accordance with a certain set of principles. So the state by design is able to challenge any sort of competing territory. You could have like, one thing I like talking about a lot is this patchwork model. You can think of it in terms of like different patches, but also I, in terms of complexity, I like thinking of it in terms of like nested substructures that can kind of be like a like a heat map or something where they're kind of you can think of like different colors representing different sets of rules and they can kind of be hills and valleys and some are larger and some are smaller. Um, and so the rules that are being enforced can be variable to some degree, but they're all abiding by broader libertarian principles that's keeping things consistent and you've got a sovereign that's enforcing these things. So you could experiment with other, other sorts of subsystems inside. Um, but in terms of the territory itself, to me, it seems like that's the one thing that has to be expressly, the, the power over it is absolute insofar as it can be, because otherwise, how, how are you supposed to be exercising meaningful agency over the subjects? So if you want competition to occur, it has to occur from outside of the system, new so, other territory. Yeah, okay. What about hmm, what about the so, so do you think that a poorly run patch, you know, or a poor, poorly run city in that case would collapse under its own incompetence because of the fleeing of, you know, the, the citizens within it, like they'll go somewhere else? Possibly. Or one thing I talk about, too, is that the Patrick model is kind of nice or more specifically the um, e economically incentivizing rulers to want to rule well and as many people as possible means that right now there's not a whole lot of reason like everybody in the world can look at North Korea and go like oh like sucks for them that's so messed up but nobody has any personal vested interest in going over and going to war with North Korea it's like no 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 that, that's there's, there's no point and, and nobody has any like real skin in the game as to why they'd want to do that outside of like intense humanitarian issues but if you introduce a profit motive, maybe instead of North Korea, you can say, yeah, this whatever small and competently run city or patch or whatever. If some other business guy is like looking over being like, oh, they're doing a really bad job at managing these things, I can either purchase them outright, or you know, you could, this is where the Machiavellianism comes in, like, well, or just go and invade them. I mean, if there's people that are being like persecuted in this uh, situation, then maybe they wouldn't mind some invading power to come and liberate them from their oppressors and institute a more effective political system. Mm. Yeah, so so I agree with that. I I just also wonder what the um what the role is for you know an, an internal um I guess emancipation you know for lack of a better term. And, and this is sort of where I think um. I don't know. It's, it's 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 a challenging one because this is where like I've got five points here about um, citadels is like yeah scale the removal of financial power competition separation of money and state and sort of dynamic 
inequality or caste. So it's like, um, your point is very similar. It's analogous to the idea of I'm a cafe owner and I'm a really competent, you know, hospitality person. And there's a cafe down the road run by a fucking moron. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just go and buy it um, because, you know, he, he's crap. And then I can actually provide a better service um, to it. So it's like, you know, the idea there that the monarch might, you know, sell their patch of land um, to someone else, for example. Um, but, you know, the idea that I feel like it, it may not need to get to that if there is some sort of competitive force internally, um, you know, with, you know, someone who has, because you've also got the idea that, you know, people or constituents of this jurisdiction um, also, you know, actually provide input in making the city better. Like, you know, they, they build businesses and they you know, provide products and services, et cetera. And, you know, they're, I don't, you know, the, the, the ability for somebody to, let's say, start from nothing um, and amass enough private property, amass enough resources to be powerful enough to start, you know, acquiring and potentially, you know, from, from the inside actually become you know, the lord or the prince of the sovereign. But a solution to the problem you're suggesting is the idea that, like, because I, I'm always just about, at some point you have to assert your right to exist and that's kind of the, you're territorializing, right? And then you're, mm-hmm. if, as long as you are capable of territorializing, then you can establish whatever rule set within that may work or not work and that will determine how long the system exists for. So uh, in my, I, well, you're totally right. Like, okay, I think we should rent. You think we should own in perpetuity. Patchwork says both just try it out and see what works better. But also in terms of your concern with my point of view, you could also just have somebody who's renting a bunch of land and then one day has enough power that they've got either physical or financial that then whoever the current sovereign is, they're like, okay, actually this new little nest that I've created within your broader territory, we've putting up, we're putting up our own walls now and we're declaring autonomy. Like you could technically just have the individual revolution within the system. Um, I'm not sure how that would go over necessarily, but yeah, the ability to kind of assert yourself needs to exist, but also there's always going to be forces that are inhibiting that from occurring, right? So so it's like a never ending. Well, yeah, you, you can't guarantee anything that who watches the watchers, it's just an infinite regress. At some point you have to kind of hope that competence is going to be steering things broadly speaking in, in the direction they need to go mm-hmm. yeah totals all the way down um okay so so then let's let's talk about scale then so when you think about the patchwork thing like you know what one thing that i've said for a couple of years now is that you know we'll live in a world where we have you know 10 million cities as opposed to 200 countries like and you know i think we'll have you know leagues of city states and stuff like that um What's your thought about the the scale element of sort of this patchwork idea of these charter cities? I think I could do anything. I'm pretty, I, I am, haven't really, because I'm always doing things bottom up, it's like, okay, if they focus on the internal structure of a state mm. that I think be effective first, and then the IR kind of consequences of that, that's further down the line. Um, I think I could see it going in both ways where yeah, of course, you're going to have lots of competition and lots of small city states that exist and come and go and all these things. But then also because of this sort of complexity Pareto 80-20 notion, it also seems to me very likely that over time, as you have natural competition between these competing systems, um, 
and generally speaking, I think people want to live abiding by similar sets of principles, it would make sense to me that, well, you will still have 20% of those new nations, be they city states or kind of more broad, I'm not sure what term you use when it's like, you can have a bunch of cities all over the world that are still unified and you can fly back and forth between them and stuff like that. Or taking like a league or something, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so you still might have ones that are much more dominating in the political sphere, but that's a good thing actually, right? It means that they're using their power well and they're providing a thing that people want. So the notion that that's going to, you're still gonna have some really big global players that are controlling most um, things is fine because you're always leaving that possibility for people to, that one ant to wander in a different direction and find something new that's actually a better solution that will then slowly get brought in and you'll start seeing consequences across the system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, okay, so, so one of the predicates there that you're discussing is the capacity for uh, individuals to actually be able to move out, right? Like to opt out. So if they don't like something, they need to move somewhere else because I guess what gives these future city-states uh, power is actually having customers, right? To, to generate income from, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the absence of customers, um, they're not gonna be generating income. So, so there's that point, but then, yeah, I, I agree that long-term, um, you know, the most functional model will, you know, be most replicated. Um, and then, you know, if it's, you know, if there's multiple cities operating on a very similar type of model, there's, you know, a lot of benefit in forming leagues and, um, and alliances, um, which makes sense. But um, I feel like, you know, the, what's really, really important for all of this is you know, the capacity to break away. I, I feel like one of the biggest risks of this kind of the future is this, um, this attempt by, you know, globalist morons to try and remove the ability to opt out. Um, you know, I mean, it's in Australia now, for example, you're not allowed to leave the country because, you know, the, the democratic dictators decided that, you know, your health is their responsibility. Um, so, you know, based on some sort of emergency, um, they have literally restricted your capacity to fucking exit. Um, or, you know, or, or another example is in America, right? Like you're a tax slave forever. <laughs> you actually can't exit that. So, so I feel like that's the biggest risk uh, for this. Um, well, I mean, but that's also something that exists in the status quo, right? That's something I talk about in the sixth episode of this podcast is the idea that like the oppression and anarchy is the default because you're always going to be born into some system if that's like a Rousseauian state of nature or if that's um, a state of slavery or if that's uh, just a you know Western democracy, you're always going to be you know forced to do things that you don't want to do or whatever it is and the the desire to be able to extricate yourself from that for whatever motivations is um i think important and something that will always kind of it, it, the, the question is looking for those answers and those solutions but they can never be completely guaranteed right but it, it's the it's the quest to perpetuate them and the fact that there is utility in that sort of libertarian idea um which makes it true and desirable means that I think it'll kind of it'll kept getting brought back to that same point of like okay well there's the status quo and then there's the person that's totally against it and there's always going to be a tension between those two forces and of course the one person that's against 
the rest of the globalist system is always going to be at a disadvantage. Um, but you can't do anything about that. That's just the way the world works. Or, or it's a, or it's a transient state. So, so I guess th this is where I, you know, want to kind of bring Bitcoin in again. Is that you mentioned um, the, these city states, or you know, the sovereign or the prince, you know, kind of being a focal point or a node for both, like you know, f financial power and um, and force, you know, or you know, monopoly on violence. Um, I, I think Bitcoin throws a curveball into this situation is because it doesn't actually allow any nodes of uh, financial power to exist, um, or at least financial power in the way we understand it today, right? Like, so, so like the US has financial power first and foremost um, because it's got the reserve currency of the world. Um, and it, it, in, you know, it, it kind of sort of, it's strong. It's closely correlated or closely related to its um, its monopoly on violence globally. You know, by being you know the entity which can you know enforce the U.S. dollar as the the global currency. But when you actually completely separate money and state, and and you place money kind of out here, um, out of the reach of any sovereign, um. I think you 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 create a situation where you actually solve the problem of who watches the watchman, because today you can be a sovereign power, so you can be a state, and you can fraudulently uh, keep yourself in power, which means you can fraudulently keep yourself economically viable um, through the means of uh, producing the money, um, which yeah. is something that you can't do on a Bitcoin standard. When I when I talk about the, the sovereign having like the force and money, I don't mean that they would be in control of the economic system that their state is using. I like I totally think, yeah, like Bitcoin is a it would be a valuable tool to have in any system because of exactly what the reasons you're describing. Um, I mean that they have they're not they have enough money, they, they're being motivated by money and they're also not like suffering from a lack of it which means that you're not going to run the risk of somebody else coming and purchasing um, political persuasion through a dollar because it's like, this is already the most empowered person. And so they're not going to care about some bribe that they're being offered because their vested mm -hmm, interest mm -hmm. is maintaining a non-corrupt system because that's going to generate the most revenue in the long term. Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, well, that, that's, that's, that's a very important point. I mean, well, that, that comes down to sort of, that, that reminds me almost of, you know, in the ancient times and the medieval times and times of the Renaissance, like you had these, you know, benefactors who built shit, right? Like they built statues, they built monuments, they built churches, they built all this stuff. Like, you know, the Medici's were a perfect example of that. It's, um, you know, whereas that kind of uh, responsibility has kind of fallen on the state today and and there's no like the state doesn't actually give a shit so they build you a fucking gray box and call it art you know like whereas you know the medicis wanted to leave a legacy so so i think that that's a very valid point and i think you know for me this also ties into you know to the trend to the i i did a talk recently where i said you know bitcoin's not only the most um important economic decision in an individual can make today, but I actually believe it's the most asymmetric economic opportunity in the history of all of humanity. Like, and, and we're lucky enough to sort of be born at that time because when you think about 
you know, what money represents is, is, you know, people say that transportation is a big industry, you know, uh, or food is a big industry or pharmaceuticals is a big industry or electronics is a big industry. Like take every fucking industry on the planet that exists um, and money is all of it, right? So, so, so Bitcoin is the largest possible thing. And when you think about what Bitcoin will represent, it's like, it's going to be, you know, the 21 million Bitcoin, um, sorry, the value of one Bitcoin is going to be infinity. So like everything that exists and everything that will ever exist divided by 21 million. So, so that'll be the purchasing power of a single Bitcoin. And, and, you know, acquiring Bitcoin now before the rest of the world realizes it actually places you in the position to become a future sovereign, noble lord or prince. I, I honestly believe that. So, so I think Bitcoin is actually the, the predicate for the patchwork system actually emerging because then what you've actually got is um, individuals uh, who are extraordinarily wealthy. I actually, you know, I think one Bitcoin will be enough to for you to build an entire sovereign fucking chartered city um, of decent proportion. Um, but because we're all operating on a common monetary standard um, and we can't get an unfair advantage uh, at the expense of someone else in the system by being able to print money, what you get is this natural um, dynamic equilibrium uh, of economic competition. Like we all are facing the same economic reality. Like, because currently today, like we can lie to ourselves. The US can go and print $6 trillion or borrow. Like, you know, there used to be a thing called the debt ceiling. <laughs> now they don't give a fuck. They just like continue to borrow from the future. And it's not at their own expense. It's actually at the expense of our future resources and you know the people born down the track. So we can play this fake game and actually burn through our resources and fuck everything up in the process, but create the illusion of you know having power or maintaining a monopoly. Whereas on a Bitcoin standard, you can't fucking do that. Like you can't create more of it. You can't you can't coercively take it from somebody. It, it can only, like Bitcoin only functions if I choose to voluntarily give you some. And that also adds to the, the shift from, you know, subject overlord to customer and service provider. So like, you know, I don't know. I'm, I, I guess I'm trying to make the point that by separating money from state, we can actually move towards this kind of a patchwork model. But in the absence of that, I don't think we get there. I actually think we fucking blow ourselves up or create like a, you know, dystopian nightmare where we, you know, end up sending ourselves backwards, you know, a hundred thousand years in the process. So, so I feel like, you know, Bitcoin is almost a, it's humanity's um, uh, reaction to, you know, all of the democratic, you know, globalist collectivist stupidity that has kind of engulfed everything and like you know bitcoin has emerged as a as a counterbalancing force for that so i don't know if you've got any thoughts on that um well, earlier when you're talking about the medicis i was thinking like i'm in complete agreement with you with you over the idea of like yeah the you want you want to have the sovereignty be in control of the financial resource but you do want them to be wealthy that, that, that there's a meaningful distinction there um but the idea of to exactly like people are very unhappy with the fact that we don't have you know beautiful European cathedrals throughout North America and people kind of I think wrongfully attribute this to a loss of religion and the idea that well it's because you know if only we had 
more, so many people could be united around some central force of uh, spiritual belief, then we could create these beautiful mosques or whatever it is. But the truth is that it's just having highly concentrated wealth and state power that can also look um, and to invest in something that's going to exist for a few hundred years rather than like a few decades or something. So by kind of empowering the sovereign to, you want them to be as wealthy as possible because that's going to make the state more safe. It also allows them to kind of invest in um, public goods that we'd consider, you know, like beautiful feats of architecture and design that we haven't seen being built over the past 100, 200 years as frequently because they, um, they actually have the, the ability to control that much resources. Whereas right now it's like, you know, the, the Canadian government isn't gonna be building any cathedrals anytime soon and nor would we want them to be because that's completely unrelated um, to <laughs> what the most average person wants to be seeing. Um, but yeah, I think you could get and kind of produce more beautiful outcomes for societies as well, just by following through this notion of like, it's having wealth being concentrated isn't actually an issue and it doesn't um, prevent other people from becoming wealthy, which is something that people very frequently don't seem to understand. I really want to touch on that last point there, but um, I, I think more than just sovereign um, being wealthy and, you know, producing, you know, artworks and stuff like that. I think the, the rise of, you know, I, I, I really believe in this idea of like, you know, yes, the prince, but I also believe in the idea of like nobles and lords and, you know, and, and I'm just kind of, you mean by this but i'm curious okay i i mean like um you know so so let's use i, I don't like elon musk so let's use steve jobs as like the archetype of like a prince right so so someone who's like you know produced and amassed a ridiculous amount of wealth and produced something of great value you know then then there might be you know like the the a lord might be someone who's you know in the hundred million dollar range you know produced an incredible business you know and sold that um, you know, didn't produce a billion, multi-billion or trillion dollar business, but still something, you know, extremely profound and powerful. And, you know, he is someone who, you know, owns, it's, it's almost like a, maybe a county within, you know, the sovereign state. Um, and, you know, you, you get multiple of these lords, you know, within the sovereign state who kind of um, help with a fracture or, or, or create some sort of um, some sort of accountability uh, within, you know, the 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 borders of, you know, of the sovereign state, and then sort of, you know, I would call, you know, the nobles is, you know, kind of the emerging people. So, you know, I might own ten McDonald's franchises, or you know, maybe something a little bit healthier, or whatever. But you know, I I own that, so I'm I have some level of you know, power, influence, and wealth um, in there. So, so I guess I'm giving them arbitrary, um, you know, names, but it, but it's kind of. Do they wield political power? Is my question. Um. Yeah, because I think we're all like p political power is in a sense, um, you know, interrelated. Like, because the la the larger the territory becomes, the the more difficult it is. To provide services right um you know it, it gets a hell of a lot more complex um and you know like as as with any business actually the more you scale up the more of a monolith um you become or the more of a behemoth you become you can't you know and this is where i think localism is you know an important 
idea or philosophy is, you know, this idea that things can only scale up to a certain degree and then they start to fracture and break down again, um, is that, you know, if a, a sovereign um, or a prince wants to run things um, efficiently, he needs a good fucking management team, you know, and, and the management team fundamentally, you know, has political influence or, ha or has influence, you know, uh, with the sovereign now, you know, the sovereign may be the one who makes the final call or whatever, but, you know, in, in a sense, like distributing some of that decision-making to counties or, or, you know, or, or sub jurisdictions, I think, um, makes a lot of functional sense. Um, and, and yeah, what were you gonna say? Oh, the, I, yeah, we're just, we're in a disagree. Uh, we're in a total agreement there. I just would, wouldn't think to, um, generate a separate title. That's, for this precise role, but I completely understand what you're saying. I think, because I guess, you know, the, the, there's, there's a point here about, you know, I've, I've, Jordan Peterson seems to have a real misunderstanding of inequality. Um, you know, he, he always talks about how, you know, Pareto distributions, you know, create problems in society because, you know, we get this inequality of, you know, wealth distribution and stuff. And for me, um, I try and delineate between, um, static inequality and dynamic inequality and you know in the world we live today we've got a lot of static inequality so so we've got a fucking class system right we we, we have if you're one of the poors like if you're broke destitute poor or whatever and you know let's say you're born in africa or a shit country or whatever you actually can't fucking climb because you don't have the capacity to save you have a poor currency you have you know fucked up laws ridiculous government which taxes you know more than you earn or whatever the case is but you actually stay at the bottom and it takes an extraordinary amount of, you know, uh, effort and, you know, a good dose of luck to be able to climb out of that bottom cusp. And then in the current system, if you're close enough to the top, you don't actually have to provide value. You don't have to do anything of value. Um, you're close enough to the monetary spigot. So you're the first beneficiary of, uh, you know, the money printer. You're the first beneficiary of like, let's say you're a, um, you know, one of the the fangs or the famga or whatever in the, in the nasdaq like as the government produces money you know it goes to the central banks then goes to the investment banks and then goes all on your fucking balance sheet because they put the money somewhere and where does it go it goes into you know assets like our 401ks for example or in australia superannuation like i think australia's got the equivalent of the 401k like superannuation is like one of the largest uh you know pooled funds in the world and all of that money gets invested in the top 20 um, companies listed on the Australian stock exchange. Mm -hmm. What the fuck, you know, so, 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 so they get, they get this kind of like flywheel effect, right? So at the moment, if you're at the top of the strata, you don't have to actually produce or add any more value in society. You just need to build moats to keep you there. Um, and what ends up happening is, you know, the, the lower middle class, the middle class and the upper middle class, we pay for the people at the bottom and for the shitheads at the top. But we're all fucking stuck in our, you know, class. Yeah. Like we, it's it's not mobile, so it's it's a static inequality. And what you end up getting is because we're static, the resources kind of flow upwards because you know the the people at the top who have very little skin in the game, they have the capacity to basically privatize gains and socialize losses. You know, they play the game of heads I win, tails you lose. Whereas you know. On, on a Bitcoin standard, um, because you kind of remove that, because I, I honestly believe that the, the, the most important power 
um, that any entity on in the universe can wield is the mechanism through which we measure human action. So in other words, money like that, that there, that funds force that funds everything else. So you, know, you, you kind of you throw that out and you kind of put it out of the reach of man, you know, like you make it a, a, a deity, like you, you, you separate it out, separate it from state, from everything. Um, you actually get what I call like this um, kind of like a playing field of, um, of dynamic inequality. So we'll still have classes, you know, we'll still have poor people, broke young people, you know, young people are fucking don't have any money. Right. And, you know, but they, the, the, when they trade their labor, their time, their effort, they actually trade it for the same monetary unit that anybody who is at the top actually trades it for. Um, so they have the capacity to actually climb. So, so you've got this, you have classes, but the classes are permeable because we're all on the same global standard. Um, and simultaneously, like the people at the bottom, they can climb, but the people at the top, they actually can fall. And, and that is so fucking important because, you know, you might have been intelligent um, or you might have just been lucky um, or you might have been early to Bitcoin. So you have a shitload. But because you can't create more to keep yourself in that position or you can't take it coercively from someone, um, as you, you know, if you make bad decisions or if you blow it all on hookers and coke or if you, you know, you, you build a bad business or a shit city or whatever, or you die and your kids are fucking retarded and they blow it all. Like you actually come down um, and that dynamic inequality is like, for me, how nature functions. And that gives you an 80, 20 distribution. So, you know, yes, 20, 80% of the wealth will probably be held by 20% closer to the top, but they can't stay there through, um, you know, fraudulent practices. They have to stay there through merit or competence. And, mm -hmm. and that creates a situation in society where, you know, on the way down, you have a, you know, the corrective, the corrective, uh, I guess, like economic reality corrects you much quicker on the way down, um, and uh, economic reality forces you to maintain competence and merit on the way up. And I think where where I want to tie this to is, um, you know, the dynamic inequality that I believe is going to exist. Um, also in this kind of patchwork model of city-states that poorly run city-states will lose their constituents um, and well-run city-states will, you know, gather them. But you, I don't believe anything can be well-run all the fucking time. And the larger it gets, the probably more poorly run it'll become. So as it starts to scale up, it'll naturally reach an equilibrium where, you know, it runs really badly at this scale. Um, and it actually needs to break down into, um, you know, emergent sub-city states, perhaps, you know, and, and that's where the idea of nobles and lords in my mind comes up is that that's people who have amassed enough wealth who can then partition off a section and be part of a, you know, a league or something like that. So anyway, I babbled on for fucking ages just then, but I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Well, just what you're saying about like uh, poverty and uh, Bitcoin, like one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin as a system is that even if you are not um, generating new wealth, the fact that it's a fixed quantity means that so long as other people are, you're still going to get, uh, you're still going to increase your purchasing power and get richer just by virtue of the fact that other people are providing things into the system, which is 
like such an amazing selling point that people seem to constantly like overlook. I, I don't know, just the fact that deflation is like the most incredible thing in the world and we don't pay any attention to just how valuable it is. It's an ETF on human prosperity. That's literally what I, what I call it. Like holding Bitcoin is like holding an ETF on human prosperity. If we get better, if we get more innovative, if we produce more, your purchasing power goes up. It's a fucking incredible thing. So thank yeah, you for pointing that out. Reward saving too, because right now all of the market pressures are like spend your money as quickly as you acquire it because it's just going down and try to get it into something that's a little bit more stable. But what you actually want is, you know, you don't want a, a society that's um, motivated by consumerism, right? Like if you can have just money sitting in your bank account, in your crypto wallet, and it's just going to passively generate returns for you, that's amazing. That's better than any other system you could imagine. Yeah. To that point, I, I wouldn't say passively generate returns. I would say passively appreciate in purchasing power. Because I don't think, like, I think a lot of the, yes, you, yes, you look yes. at all the, yeah, the Ethereum monkeys and everything like that who are trying to create fucking, you know, uh, these complex, um, you know, interest-bearing things and shit like that where you actually try and question, so where's the money actually coming from? It's all just one big Ponzi scheme. Whereas like Bitcoin, because it is fixed in supply and when you fix the money um, and you increase human productivity, you actually increase purchasing power, which you, so I, I think you brilliantly mentioned it in your, um, your, podcast where you said like uh purchasing power is what counts so it's like you know you can you can fix the money but like wealth is unlimited right and so if you fix the money then you actually incentivize saving and, and you know i always say that saving is like it's genuinely the cornerstone of civilization like if a human being cannot save the product of their labor you, you cannot build for the future you cannot lower you know future uncertainty you cannot lower your time preference it, it's a it's the biggest cancer in the world today. And that's why like, you know, Bitcoiners are so like, I guess, passionate is like fix the money, fix the world is kind of like one of our memes. And, and it sounds trite, but it's like, it's so, it's so important because if you sort of- The role that money plays in those systems that they exist inside of. Yeah. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Um, so, so you mentioned something earlier about like, you know, people sitting on savings doesn't inhibit others from creating their own wealth. Can you please like talk to this point just a little bit? Because this one drives me fucking crazy. It's like, you know, people like wanting to take down billionaires because they've got it in their fucking bank accounts. Like, so what? Go and work yourself, you loser. So like, can you please talk me through it? This. Yeah, well, and it's you can get it even a little bit more juicy than that in terms of people conceptualize the notion of somebody else having money, meaning that they have taken something out of the system that's preventing other people from accessing it. But and that would apply if we lived in a tribal society where you used clamshells or something to trade with. Because then if one guy gets a bunch of clamshells and goes away, then you can't trade anymore because you can't break the clamshells in half. But so long as you can keep subdividing the currency, then it being used, all money is is a measure of information. And so, so long as you can keep breaking it apart, then you can continue to spread the information and it's not preventing any um, growth from occurring. So what gets even more bizarre is when people get all mad at Jeff Bezos for having all this money. A, it's not like it's just sitting in his bank, it's operating in other assets. Um, it's not like he's just has a pile. I mean, I'm sure he has some pile of money to sleep on, but it's not the whole billions or trillions of dollars or whatever it is. Um, yep. But by contributing to the system and then not spending it and saving it, 
you're actually kind of being doubly charitable in a weird sort of way because you're providing value. And then instead of taking that value and cashing it out and going and getting a smoothie or something, you're just keeping it, meaning other people can go and get smoothies if they want, which is like a tangible resource, which is going to be then you know, more or less depleted. But you're just keeping money at home, which isn't preventing anyone from doing anything. <laughs> Um, so it's weirdly charitable. You can kind of invert it and then realize that if you go and make billions of dollars and live in a modest condo and don't spend any of it, you've just um, made the rest of the world much more wealthy while not taking anything in exchange. You could be like sitting on a gold throne or something, but you're, you're not. And you're just letting that value go out into the world. Yes. And, and that point, I guess, you know, the Bitcoiner in me wants to like throw in again, is like it's more functional or, or, or it's only properly functional um, with the money that is fixed in supply. So it's like when you mm-hmm. do that, like on a Bitcoin standard, that's actually meaningful. I think where, where people, and this is where people sort of, you know, conflate, they conflate money, they conflate wealth, they conflate fucking, you know, all sorts of things. But like, um, like in, in today's world, um, you know, there is, because Jeff Bezos, by virtue of having built an incredible business um, and actually adding value, um, and then, you know, by virtue of the system then being so skewed towards, you know, all of the new fake money kind of coalescing around, you know, a few companies, um, you know, he's been the beneficiary of the broken system. So, so it's not technically, it's not his fault. Um, and any rational actor in this system would have positioned themselves in a similar place, right? Um, it, it's, it's that, you know, p- people point at the wrong part of the problem. So, you know, like he actually produced something of extraordinary value. Um, and, you know, people like that will exist, I think, on a Bitcoin standard in the future. But the, the, the beauty there is that they, um, I think what, one of the big things that people are uh, not anticipating is the, because an Amazon or a Twitter or a Google or a Facebook or an Apple or whatever won't, I mean, they'll, they'll still probably get like, you know, excessive amounts of capital because like, you know, the, you know, the, the structure of markets is such that you want to chase winners, right? So, so, you know, you still will get um, extra capital, but what we remove is all of the the fake capital um, because like, you know, I, I use Twitter as an example or even YouTube as an example. They actually don't really need to make money um, as businesses um, because they can just keep raising uh, public capital um, and they can still keep being beneficiaries of the, the current fiat system. So what you get is you, you get this sort of situation. I'm trying to write an article um, and I've, one day I've got to finish this, but it's called like the rise of the technocratic Leviathan. Then I say that because there's a monopoly on money, um, you know, and that's sort of given a monopoly on large scale states. Um, now what you've ended up having is sort of the rise of these, you know, oligopoly or monopoly type you know, technology companies um, that have an unnatural amount of resources mm-hmm. because of the way, you know, the 
the resource through which we measure human action filters through, right? Like the money filters to them first and it comes to everybody else last. And it just, it just creates a system that is actually unfair, right? Um, and it gives us, yeah, like I said, like natural, uh, unnatural inequality. Like, whereas when, when you remove that element of it, like you can actually build, let's say a competitor to, to Google or Twitter or Facebook or Amazon or whatever. Um, and you can actually compete with them um, because what will drive income is actually value um, and solving a problem. Whereas if you get to the point like, you know, where you're a Goldman Sachs, they don't actually solve any more fucking problems. Like they're, they're just close enough to the money printer that they can just stay there. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's it kind of has to do with um, com like complexity will generate feedback loops, but then you can have maladaptive feedback loops that are continuing to perpetuate throughout the system, which is why it's uh, advantageous to be able to understand how those mechanisms work so you can step back and then kind of re-examine. Like a cute example of this is like the QWERTY keyboard is a less effective mm -hmm typing setup than whatever, the, the, I can't remember, D Dvorak, I think is the alternative, which if you learn to type on that, you'll type way more quickly and efficiently. And the QWERTY is like a legacy from typewriters when they'd get jammed too easily. But now as a society, we're all using something which is more inefficient because it's like the sunk cost of changing it feels too hard to overcome or something, even though, well, we'd all be much faster typers if we we're able to kind of step outside of this feedback loop that we put ourselves into, but that instigating that switch is difficult, whether it's money or something more silly. Yes, so, so, so what's your point in that sense though? Oh, just that you can have feedback loops that are perpetuating uh, ineffective systems that arise out of um, you know um, complex orientations, but they are no longer beneficial. And so it's yes. to have some uh, be able to kind of step back and recognize where and when that's occurring and course correct because otherwise you won't think about the fact that um, you have all these sort of inefficiencies that even though they should be getting weeded out they can actually stick around for longer than they need to <laughs> and could I add in there the point about like how you know natural competition is the way that these things sort of get weeded out like because they can't get weeded out if like you know if you don't have competition or if you can stamp out competition. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's probably something else we've sort of seen in the last 18 months. Like, I, I guess another reason why people are angry at Jeff Bezos is that, you know, he's benefited from moronic government regulations around, you know, stay home and don't go to the shop because like the corner shop, the small business owner must shut down, but, you know, Amazon can operate because, you know, like, so, so that's it, like, the, the state just seems to like literally make fucking everything worse. And it's like, it, it's not Amazon's fault. Like it is genuinely fucking morons in the government who like literally the buffoons who just make arbitrary decisions for everybody. Like I was in Miami for the last couple of weeks and it was fantastic. Like, you know, people were free. Everyone was running around, like, you know, enjoying themselves and all this sort of stuff. Um, like living like normal human beings um, and then just sort of contrasting that with, you know, coming back to Mexico and just like people freaking out and like, you know, I swear to God, like wearing masks while they're training in the gym. Like it just sort of reminds me of like, you guys go to the how, gym. At least there's that. Yeah. So, so do you guys still have all your gyms shut? Do you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The rules here are just preposterous. They, they make absolutely no sense. 
yeah, which is well, kind of that's... beneficial long term in terms of uh, revealing government incompetence in all sorts of areas. Well, well that, that, that's right. So, so I guess the silver lining in all of this stupidity is that, you know, the, there's a whole lot of short-term pain, but it's, uh, you know, the longer-term ramifications of it is they're, they're basically digging their own grave. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect example of, um, of like, yeah, almost like arbitrary rules created by moron rulers um, that have, you know, no basis in like first principles or anything like that but anyway that's a that's a much that's another another rabbit hole so we've talked about philosophy talked about predator distributions determinism and liberty uh free will anarchism royalism uh citadels scale uh we spoke a little bit about uh, money and bitcoin is there anything else you would like to cover this has been a fantastic conversation by the way yeah, I've really enjoyed myself. I don't think there is. I've got one more episode of Wonderland coming out, which will be out by the okay. end of the month. And that one's about um, contracts and commerce. And I'm doing a big piece talking about intellectual property laws. So like copyright and mm -hmm. patents and why I am philosophically opposed to them. So that, okay, I may awesome. that a little bit. Do you, do you want to do a couple minutes on that now? Like sure. Um, yeah, they're no good. <laughs> they, <it's, laughs> All right, done. Yeah, case closed. Um, I, I think it's another, I, similar to kind of um, how I conceptualize land ownership. To me, it seems like some uh, a legacy principle that doesn't actually work in the way that we think it does, and it creates more problems than solutions. And lots of the time when people are faulting capitalism for creating what they perceive to be inequalities and generating fake monopoly power, actually, that's a product of uh, or lots of the time it's a product of uh, IP laws, which I think are totally illegitimate. And so in my formulation of if you were to like blank slate, do a new state on a piece of paper, I say get rid of those because um, you're going to be incentivizing a lot more uh, competition and progress if you do without them. And, and in terms of incentivizing for like new creations and artists and stuff like that, I think there's other ways people can um, make money and profit that isn't dependent upon having a, you know, a monopoly on an idea essentially, which I don't think is sensical. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. So, so a long time ago, I, I mean, a long time ago, like a couple of years ago, I was still kind of in the camp of like IP makes sense. Or, or, although I always had a position of um, execution matters more than the idea. So like, and that just sort of being an entrepreneur myself, like, the amount of times I've like run a business and, you know, like one of the first questions I always get from idiot investors is like, oh, do you have a patent on that? I'm like, no, like we, even if we had a fucking patent, like, you know, doesn't matter. Like we, we don't have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to protect the patent anyway. So it's like that kind of is a moot point in the first place. So I've always kind of had the predisposition as an entrepreneur. It's like that execution matters uh, more than the idea, but yeah, like there, there was a really, really good Twitter thread that I saw like a month or two ago from a guy who like broke down the IP thing, which I thought was really great. But I I also got exposed to Stefan Kinsella's work um, and he's sort of like the, you know, number one like IP guy who's like been against, you know, the whole IP law position for, you know, for, for God knows how long now. And and he kind of opened my eyes to it. And, and I think one of the central points that got me over the line is like, you know, 
to have private property ownership over something like first and foremost, it kind of needs to be scarce. Like in an idea can't be scarce, right? Like mm-hmm. you and I can have an idea and we can have the same fucking idea. Um, so, so you can't really protect that. So it's like just the, the, the foundation of IP is like sort of falls apart there. Um, and then, yeah, the like you kind of said, like ramifications then that it has on competition and all sorts of other things just creates like fucking Frankenstein outcomes mm-hmm. for the whole mm-hmm. thing really bad um, outcomes in terms of, you know, pharmaceutical companies not producing valuable uh, medicine for people who need it because, well, there's an economic incentive to do otherwise and nobody can do anything about it. It's completely absurd, Um, which is also kind of interesting in terms of conceptualizing if you're interested in the future of, well, new sorts of nations and charter cities and all the rest of it. Currently, kind of part of the problem with IP law is that in order to... um, participate in global trade that's kind of like a prerequisite I think and so that's really it's forced it upon countries that otherwise maybe wouldn't um benefit from it or wouldn't agree to it it's like well okay but we have to protect Mickey Mouse over here if we want to be able to trade with the big boys so okay fine we'll do it um and that that I guess generally just begs interesting questions in terms of if you're interested in the formation of new states, how are you going to kind of reconcile those two different things? Um, because there's always going to be an incentive for monopolists who want um, patent protections and stuff like that to flock towards systems where those exist. So then the question is, do the benefits of abolishing IP outweigh the costs of um, not having those producers? Yeah, well, I, I, I think they, the thing is, again, it comes down to like scale and timeline, right? So on a long enough timeline, it does. Um, but in the short term, and it, I actually think this is one of the hardest things for humans to do is like to actually like be patient and not try and like press the fucking button every five minutes. Like when, um, when something doesn't seem to be working in the short term, because a, a lot of things that actually are beneficial and sustain, like beneficial long-term and sustainable actually requires some sort of like short-term sacrifice and pain and that you know requires the patients to sort of sit through it so so like to to your point is you know maybe in the short term you know you lose the producer um but in the long term you can actually outcompete them because you have you know more competition so it's like can you sit through that period of um you know not having them around um and that like genuinely requires like leaders with courage which you know ties back into the notion of you know a prince you know who you know has some sort of you know strong jurisdiction and skin in the game you know for his um and a set of intelligible because i think Mm. people are raised with an assumption that this is a public good and that there has to be important reasons for it and then you never really question it so i'm just very interested in kind of planting the seeds of doubt in terms of lots of things that we've come to accept um, as being necessary for some reason. Well, is that actually the case? Or are we just being born into structures where that's the norm that's being perpetuated? Again, going back to that question of IP laws beget IP laws, you end up in this feedback loop situation, which is creating net losses for people um, until at some point you can have somebody wander away and try something out a little bit different. And then I'm pretty confident that that would produce better outcomes long-term. I. 100 percent agree um okay i'm gonna quickly mention five people that you mentioned in the last podcast because i got them listed here that were influences for you um unless unless you remember them 
Do you, oh, do you remember them off the top of your head? You asked me for five thinkers that inspired me. Yes, yes. And I think I told you Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, Ayn Rand, Curtis Yarvin, Taleb? I don't know. No, it was Douglas uh, Hofstadter. Douglas Hofstadter. Oh, yeah. Douglas Hofstadter is maybe better than Taleb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely cool. you should i remember emailing you afterwards you would love a copy of go to lesher bach yeah yeah um i will i i mean curtis yavin is um is mentius moldberg right mm-hmm. yeah okay cool yeah so and then he also calls himself john law somewhere else right yeah yeah i sent you yeah. some where he was discussing like uh bitcoin before it existed he's talking about it conceptually yeah. and that's what he wrote under <laughs> so um yeah, I've got to get through that first, and I'm going to go through Douglas. I mean, Taleb, I used to fucking love, but I feel like someone ghostwrited his work because, like, he's proven to be the biggest fucking moron on the planet in, like, the last six to 12 months. I can't believe it. Like, he was actually speaking at a BSV conference, <laughs> like, with the greatest fraud in the history of, like, the whole Bitcoin space. <laughs> he just fucking, you know. Someone a panel with Naval. Because I saw no, the two no, 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 chatting no. and it was kind of wholesome. Because no, just like, this is just literally two weeks ago. He was yeah, on. He mean. decided. Was Naval Ravikant there as well? I don't know. I saw some lecture that just got posted, but it's the two of them on stage. I thought it was at that conference, um, and they're no, no, talking. No, no, no. Okay, I'll no, send that, it. That's, that's funny that... now. I'm not sure if that's a new one though, because there was an old one with Naval and Taleb, which I watched like a couple years ago, which I thought was pretty good. Um, There's just a line in it where Naval is saying like, "Yeah, like this technology is taking a lot of your principles and applying them," and he's like, <laughs> he's just like not happy about it. But it's so cute somehow. Like, oh, you're just you don't quite understand. I don't know <laughs> where the like miscommunication is occurring, but it's pretty funny. I don't know. I feel like because he didn't create it, he's fucking pissed off. Um, or something but it's just it's just so sad to see him like become the intellectual yet idiot that he warned us of like he's become the villain that he pointed to Mm -hmm. like in his books I swear to god it's wild like because I mean you know the the bitcoin space genuinely like you know was inspired by a lot of his work like everything that he discusses um, in his books and it's like you know the, the idea of like you know bitcoin necessitates skin in the game like because you know as a holder of the thing you know you not only want to you know protect the network but you actually enforce the rules of the network you know as a node operator in whatever capacity so it's like it's got skin in the game it's an anti-fragile system which evolves and adapts as it fucking grows like it's, it's all of these things and then he goes and speaks at a fucking bsv conference with craig the fraud right like the guy who like has <laughs> been caught like literally fraudulently saying that he's satoshi a hundred times and like it's wild like you know and and that sort of obviously contradicts his point which is if you see a fraud and you don't say fraud you are a fraud (laughs) so he goes and he speaks at the frauds conference (laughs) fucking weird man it's so it's so strange but anyway yeah i um it seems like a detrimental degree yeah, it is. It is. So I, I, I would have checked Taleb in that list too, but I feel like it's Taleb's Ghost Rider that. Yeah, okay. No, Popsider is a much better. Uh, he does all the things with complexity and emergence and consciousness that are so interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, slightly less. And actually, he's very mathematic as well. I, I'll take that back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, awesome. Where can people find your work? Because they definitely need to be listening up. Um, my name's Jane Gatsby. 
and my podcast is called Wonderland and it's on YouTube and all podcasting platforms and I've got a Twitter and an Instagram that I'm pretty active on and that's uh, that. what was your what was the username on Twitter and um, Instagram is it the same Jane Gatsby um yeah on Instagram and then on Twitter there's an underscore between Jane and Gatsby okay cool so at Jane Gatsby and Jane Gatsby have you ever thought about like just matching them or do you just like the fact that you got Jane Gatsby on Instagram and now you want to keep it oh um let's put the underscore there too no I'd, I mean I'd, I'd like to have it not on Twitter but it is what it is it's a bummer yeah yeah cool well um Jane thank you so much um really enjoyed this one I'm, I'm glad we actually re-recorded because like the first one was good but yeah the the fucking audio was a disaster and I feel like this was a much more wholesome conversation anyway perfect thank you Thank you.